The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to The Iron Mist. Oh, no, he's melting. No. <laughs> my name is William Bibiani. I am a film critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. I don't have a cute nickname. I don't need one. No. I'm too cool for that, man. No, you're not. Whatever. <laughs> man, just I don't, don't, I don't care, and that's what makes me cooler, right? And uh, anyway, welcome back to The Iron List. This is a monthly podcast here at the Critically Acclaimed Network, where Whitney and I provide our personal top ten picks. Each of us provides a list mm-hmm. uh, of recommendations, our picks for the best of something, as chosen by... Uh, our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We provide four ideas for a top 10 list every single month. They pick the topic. We do the podcast. That's about how it works. <laughs> Indeed. Not, maybe you didn't need that, that big an explanation. Yeah. But anyway, uh, this month, the topic is a little blue. <laughs> Not necessarily. No. But, uh, <laughs> this is uh, the Iron List after dark. Uh, <laughs> We're talking about sex movies. Yeah, or specifically is... movies about sex, yeah. I think, was the was the official topic. Um, a lot of movies involve sexuality because sexuality is a common uh, thread in a lot of stories, uh, whether it's just movies that happen to have a romantic subplot or romance is all about it, or sometimes it's just about people who have sex. Sex is a thing people have. Um, however, not every movie is about sex. It has something mm. meaningful to say about sex. And as a result... Uh, the movies that do tend to stand out. Mm. And so we're each providing, and again, we come up with these lists completely separately. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about it ahead of time. There may be overlap, there may not. Uh, and uh, Winnie and I just came up with our top 10 list of films that we think talk about sex in an interesting way, in an entertaining mm. way, in an exciting way, a thrilling way, whatever criteria we, we want to choose. All the good things and the bad things that may be. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> it took me a second. It's, yeah, it's good. Salt and pepper. It's good. Uh, but uh, but it was, uh, it was going with this. But yeah, so the movies that we're talking about aren't necessarily sexually explicit films. No, although They're, I have a couple of those on my list. I have a few yeah. that have some that have some naughty bits. But mm. again, we're not talking about the most erotic films ever made. That's actually very personal, and it's not necessarily going to help yeah. anyone else out to even to. Uh, to point that out. Like I thought that one was hot. Like we all have those, but they're not necessarily going to overlap. We're talking about films that are about the yeah. topic and, uh, of sex. I've I've noticed something uh, a recent linguistic phenomenon uh, when people describe uh, movies as being horny. Yeah, Hor- this movie is very horny, and when they say that, that usually means it has like a lot of kind of suggestive scenes, scenes where uh, characters are really a- attracted to one another. Mm-hmm. It's it, but the it general sense that the filmmakers were hot under the color a, a little bit. Yeah. But I've I've noticed that that involves a little bit of linguistic deflection. The the viewer is no longer the horny one; it's the film that's the horny thing. Yeah, and, interesting and, point, and, but yeah. and and the viewer is now sort of. Uh, uh, 
a, a neutral consumer of a horny thing. Well, one gets the mm. inter- one gets the distinct impression that the makers of this particular mm. film or show or whatever we're talking about mm. uh, had sex on the mind and wanted to convey their sexual interests through their mm. art, and as a result, the movie itself seems to be rather hot and bothered at the moment, and so mm. we will describe it thusly. Horny. That movie is now horny. And, yeah. and, and, the, and your mileage might vary, but I think it's hard to, de- to deny mm. that the movie itself seems to be a bit a bit randy today. <laughs> um, do I have any horny movies? I got a couple. Yeah, a lot, a, a lot of my films are, are actually a little little darker, but uh, mm. I think they're all quite good. And I, no matter what the tone of the film is, I do recommend all of these ones. Yeah, and I, I struggled with this because sexuality is a really complicated topic. Mm. Um, it's very personal. Very personal, uh, very keyed in with a lot of people's identities. Um, but it's, and, and I was frustrated that I couldn't like make it a bit more inclusive and include more uh, uh, you know, sort of sexual identities mm. within my list. Unfortunately... There was been a lot of heteronormativity in Hollywood for many, 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 many years, also abroad, and it's there's a lot of that. I also tried not to have too many films that dealt with the morality of sex, although that mm. is also very much a part of the lexicon, especially, I think, in America, where there's a... and, and, and other countries as well, but, like, mm. in America, there's this weird dichotomy where we know that sex sells... But we're also trying to appeal to very conservative mindsets simultaneously. Yeah. And so there's a lot of guilt attached to them. Mm. There's a lot of shame attached to them. There's sometimes illegality attached to sexuality, which there's nothing wrong mm. with it. And um, so uh, uh, and also there's the illegality attached to things where there's actually many things wrong with it. But my mm. point is that there have been a lot of things where it's like it's illegal to kiss on screen for this long. Like that was ridiculous. We, why did we do that? Yeah, we we just, uh, in fact, on our last episode of Critically Acclaimed, we talked about Cinema Paradiso. Yeah. And there's a plot point in that movie where uh, all of the films that show at the local movie house have to be approved by the local priest before any other members of the public can see it. And whenever there's a kiss... Just a kiss, and mm-hmm. and and it's the movie starts in like the late '30s. Mm-hmm. So whenever there's a kiss in any of the feature films, uh, the priest insists it be clipped out. Yeah, and the projectionist has to clip out that little scene. There's a long history of censorship, some imposed by mm. uh, you know communities, towns, cities, states, sometimes, uh, and then self censorship, uh, and uh, that a lot of that has been total bullshit. Mm. And uh, we'll talk about some of that, I suppose, but. Um, in any case, again, for those of you who may be new to the way Whitney and I do top 10 lists, we're a little different than a lot of people. The rankings are incidental. They're mm. completely, we don't care. If a movie is on our top 10 list, it doesn't matter if it's second to last or the first one mentioned. Uh, they're all high recommendations. Mm. So we don't bother with that. We're just going to go with, through them in order of conversation. But so that it feels like we've done our diligence so that you understand where our preferences are in terms of, Mm. you know, storytelling and style and all that goodness. Uh, We do save the film that we would individually pick as the single best if we had to Mm. for last. Yes. Also gives the podcast a sense of finality. So uh, with that said, I had real hard time doing this. And oh, really? I'm not, I have a ton of runners up, not super happy with my list. I, mm. My number one is my number one with a bullet. Feel very, very confident about it. But I feel like my list is kind of all over the place. Okay. Uh, so uh, I'm just going to do what you do and say this is a list of recommendations. Mm. It's not as all-inclusive as I would like. Uh, and I'll leave that there. 
Uh, Whitney, why don't you kick yeah. us off with your uh, with your first pick well, you wanted uh, to see us? Well, you were talking about um, sort of the way um, sex and morality have been mixed up in this, I, I would say, kind of an unhealthy way in mm-hmm. the United States. A lot of the time. Yeah. Um, there's a lot of stigma that's been hung all over sex. And um, so uh, I guess I'll open with a film that is about uh, sort of the phenomenon of the purity pledge which is something that uh, some mm. some uh, teenagers in conservative communities uh, take and that and sometimes they even wear like a little ring to show that they are abstaining from all sexual activity until marriage yeah and in, in the sort of traditional judeo-christian tradition and how uh, they're allowed to date they're allowed to have romances but no sexual contact whatsoever and you start looking into the rules of some of these purity clubs you look, look up like real life stories and you'll find, really bizarre rules about like tying your hands down at night. So you're, you're not tempted to touch yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, the movie about a purity ring that uh, kind of goes awry is uh, Mitchell Lichtenstein's film teeth from 2007. Oh, I thought you were going a different direction. With it. uh, okay. It's about a, a teenage girl who uh, takes a purity pledge. She lives in a very conservative uh, neighborhood, but it's also a conservative neighborhood that has sort of like a blue velvet side. There's actually a lot of like scumbags and criminals also yeah. kind of lurking around the edges of this town. And she, she discovers, and this is the actual premise of the movie, that she is, she is, has vagina dentata. She has teeth inside. Mm. And how this is going to affect her life and her sexuality moving forward uh, is something she has to sort of deal with it. She feels kind of monstrous at first, and then she realizes that maybe this is sort of a useful tool, seeing as how all of the men in town only respond to her sexually now. Uh, she's taken this purity pledge, and she, all of a sudden she realizes how all of the males around her are reacting to her without her, like... she. And it it does bring up a lot of really important issues of the way uh, young women in particular, and this is something I've heard from young women as well as things I get from media. I'm not a young woman, but there's a lot of pressure a lot of young women feel just by dint of their gender. Yeah. By dint of going out into the world as a young woman. Try being a woman on the internet, for instance. Yeah. Uh, And they don't have to do anything. They are pilloried and sexualized openly and widely and loudly mm-hmm. without them doing anything. And this, this yeah. is a film that deals very directly with that and how uh, she can start to actually, I don't want to say uh, wield her sexuality, but actually kind of control her sexuality in a way that can finally fight back in this sort of fantasy horror movie sort of way. Yeah. It's, it's a smart film for uh, the premise you, th- you say it's the movie about the young woman with the teeth in her vagina, and that sounds like, oh, that's just some sort of, like, exploitation sort Sounds of like thing. a horror movie. Yeah, it sounds like, a, like yeah. A, a raunchy kind of horror movie. Yeah. And uh, I it's saw this... Killer Condom or something. Exactly. Yeah. Killer Condom, which is actually kind of a thoughtful movie as well. Uh, but, uh, yeah, this... I, I sounded this movie for for the first time at a midnight screening, and it was full of a lot of like raunchy, drunken guys thinking, yeah. "Yeah, it's gonna be this weird kind of sexy thing." And no, it's actually this like thoughtful feminist piece. Interesting. Uh, that, I actually that haven't is, seen this one. It's yeah, it's really quite good. So okay. uh, yeah, it came out in two thousand seven. It's uh, a good one that I bring up every Halloween. It's like, what's a good horror movie that you can recommend? Because nobody's seen Teeth, and I think yeah. you'd see Teeth on like Tubi or Pluto TV. When I, I again, I haven't seen this one. I've heard only good things. I just haven't got around to it. Um, when with your setup. I thought where you were going, and this isn't a segue, although this would have been a very good pick, I think. Uh, it's only on my list. I thought you were going to talk about Saved. 
with Jenna Malone, um, Mandy yeah. Moore, and Macaulay Culkin. I have not seen Saved. Oh, it's quite good. Yeah. Yeah, it's another one. It's about a very Christian community, and it's about a Christian girl who finds out uh, that her boyfriend, and this is in high school, hmm. uh, is gay, and uh, she gets a vision from God. I'm, I'm half remembering this. It's been a while since I've seen mm. it. She has a vision from, from God or whatever that if you sleep with your boyfriend, he will cease to be gay. And, <laughs> and what actually happens mm. is she gets pregnant and she gets vilified by the community. Jeez. Um, it's it's very, very good. Mm. It's just been a long time since I've seen it, so I hope I'm remembering mm. all the details correctly. Um, but um, yeah, okay, so teeth. That's great. I'll teeth. have to, I'll take that out. Mm. Recommend um, teeth. I, I was, I had a list mm. set up. Again, not super happy with it. Sometimes you're confident. Like, this is definitely the 10 I want to talk about. Sometimes you're like, eh. But I had my 10. And then I was talking it out with my wife and partner, M. Lampus De Silva. And I was just like, oh, yeah, I'm, I'm, we're doing this list later tonight. And she's like, what you got on there? And, and we realized that there's a film I didn't have on there mm-hmm. that I think, I, you know, this might be my weird one. You know, I like to, I like to start off with a weird one, one that maybe oh, doesn't yeah, no- yeah. normally get talked about on a list of this ilk. Um, but one that I think I can defend. Mm-hmm. And this is one that was actually kind of significant to me when I was young and it came out when I was a kid, but it introduced, um, uh, into a comedic framework, kind of a comedy storytelling tropes that I was familiar with, mm-hmm. um, a very forthright yet very positive sexuality. Okay. And a lot of the sexuality and the comedies that were coming up when I was growing up was actually pretty vile. Yeah, it's all these raunchy comedies. With yeah, very a lot of objectification, lot of, yeah. a, and not and not interestingly discussing objectification, just going for it. Mm. Um, a lot you're, of sexism, revenge of the nerds, revenge kind of, of stuff, the nerds yeah. is grotesque. Um, and the, and some of that stuff I didn't think about at the time, and now I look back and go, oh, how did we not talk about this more at the time? Yeah. Um, but uh, there's one that actually holds up really good, and it's really funny, and it's really sweet. And even though it's about someone, uh, you know, operating within a very conservative community, ultimately it comes across as very sex positive. And that is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. <laughs> uh, okay, I'll give it to you. Yeah, yeah. Elvira's shtick is is uh, double entendres and a lot of prurient gags. Yeah. So yeah, uh, Elvira, Elvira is. Uh, if if you're unfamiliar with Elvira, oh, you're in for a treat. I got to introduce. I got to introduce someone to Elvira recently, like a 21 year old who had never heard of Elvira. Oh, I think that literally like in the room. No, not, like, no, oh, no. I was about to say, that'd be cool. If, if I, if Elvira was a buddy of mine, I wouldn't shut up about it. Um, <laughs> We'd have a podcast with her. Yeah. Oh my God. That'd be the coolest podcast ever. You, you, you did ask me once, like if, if I, if I could choose my own replacement, like if I were to suddenly pass away and I could choose anybody to, to replace me on this podcast, I chose Elvira. I would, hmm. I, I have a motive for killing you now. Is, is what you gave well, me. The problem is I don't have access to Elvira. We're not actually friends. So I, I, I want to stress this. Elvira and I don't know each other. I, would, really cool. I wouldn't mind going to lunch with Elvira. I'm a huge oh. fan of Cassandra Peterson. And Cassandra mm-hmm. Peterson is um, an an actor and comedian. And uh, in the was it the early '80s or the late '70s she got started. I think on stage it was the late 70s, but she didn't start showing up on TV until the 80s. Well, in the early 80s, uh, Elvira was a late night TV show. Mm. Um, I think it was in syndication. And um, it was Cassandra Peterson in gothed up Valley Girl Mm. persona, which is a really fun combination. Um, Just doing funny jokes, introducing mostly bad, sometimes good horror movies and doing shtick in between the commercials. Mm. Um. And then she became a bit of a phenomenon. 
She was very popular. She was very funny. She clearly had a lot of stage presence. It was clearly not just a gimmick. She actually had a great character. And she got her own movie. And that movie was... And she actually had another one later, which was not as good, but is funny. Uh, Elvira's Haunted Hills is... Uh, it's, it's, right. it's not great, but if you're a fan, there's some good jokes in it. It's not the worst. Mm-hmm. Her sitcom is where it's at. Her, <laughs> she had a pilot episode for a sitcom. Then you can find this online if you just like search for it. One of the funniest sitcom pilots <laughs> I've ever seen. Every joke lands. Mm. It, I think the only reason they said it didn't get picked up is because it was made for CBS, which was pitching itself as like the family channel. And, and it, it's like, like very blue. Like, what are we what are we putting on in front of Touched by an Angel? We're going to put Elvira's raunchy damn sitcom. <laughs> it was destined to, to, to not work. And that's a shame because it was a funny show. And, and her, her outfit is part of it. She had the big witchy hairdo, but she had this like little teeny dress that... Yeah, very slinky. Uh, slinky and... and sh- showed off a lot of her chest and uh, yeah. that that was by design. She chose that outfit. There's, there's a line in uh, mm. uh, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark where one of the conservative people in this mm. town is just like, do, do you only own one dress? And she's just like, no, sometimes I wear something slinky and low cut. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, she she was always in charge. She wielded it. Yeah, it she was, was very Mae West yeah. in that regard. I mean, mm. I almost put a Mae West film on here and uh, I think I'll probably put it in my uh, runners up. But, um, she owned her sexuality. She, uh, in her movie, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, she plays herself, or she plays Elvira, rather. Mm. And um, she inherits, she finds out that, she gets fired from her job, and she finds out her great aunt has died. And she, so she goes to collect her inheritance, and her aunt lived in, like, the haunted house in an incredibly, like, Edward Scissorhands-ish, mm. like, yuppie, Bourgeois kind of suburb, no, yeah. suburb, just this, just this very conservative mid, middle America suburb, and all of like the young people are desperate for culture of any kind. They're just any culture, counter or otherwise, will take it. So as soon as Elvira rolls up, wearing things other people don't wear, and like mm. putting on like shows at the local movie theater of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes, their lives are dramatically improved. Meanwhile, all of the like stuck up, you know suburban families and el- elderly Re- people are just represented are, by Edie McClurg. Mostly by Edie McClurg, who is mm. great in everything. If you don't know the name, look her up. You've seen her in everything. Mm. Uh, they're, they're trying to kick her out. And it ends up being, it's very much, you know, you've seen this before. It's the music man. It's any time where someone just goes to a small town and they don't belong. And the town tries to kick him out. Except mm-hmm. here it's the Elvira and it's got some supernatural components and that's very funny. But it's actually just her, it's not so much her being Hollywood. Mm-hmm. It's her being flagrantly sexual. Mm-hmm. In a very innocent, honest way. She is a sexual person. When she meets a hunky guy, she knows what she wants and she flirts with him. And this makes people incredibly uncomfortable. And yet in the audience, we're enjoying it because she's she's owning her own sexuality. Mm-hmm. She is in charge of her own sexuality. She's having fun with her sexuality. And there's something about that, that even though the movie, the movie is explicitly about sex and that, you know, it's about conservative America trying to shut down Elvira, not mm. so much for the horror shtick, but because of the sexuality. Uh-huh. It felt so revolutionary at the time because there's so few comedies of the 80s that are about women owning their sexuality like this. Yeah, and in yeah. fact, it's still too rare. And that's something that comes across as just really, really fun mm. and endearing and positive And I'm going to say it. Horny. The movie is very horny. Even Edie McClurg gets to 
gets she, to one of her lines of dialogue is, "Oh, I'm quite a hornball." Yeah, uh, uh, <laughs> because Elvira puts a curse on the meat pies. Yeah, she, no, it's, it's stew. It's yeah, she yeah, brings like stew with like sex spells in and it. Every, and it's it's basically like um, uh, what's what's simply resistible was one of them. But what's the other movie where someone like puts their emotions in their cooking? Like water for chocolate. Like water for chocolate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, it's basically that. Except like water for chocolate apparently ripped it off because that came out several years later. So <laughs> you're welcome, Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. Very funny, very sweet, very sex positive, and it was something that introduced me to positive sexuality, and I wanted to give a yeah. shout out, because it's a really funny movie, and it deserves more credit. Well, I don't have any positive movies. Mine are all... You have any dour. positive movies? No, I, I actually do have one incredibly positive movie, so I'll, I'll segue right into a film that came out to much malign, uh, was shunted off to the side because it was rated NC-17. Okay. It was difficult oh. to see. It's hilarious. It's John Waters' A Dirty Shame. Oh, I thought you were uh, going to go with Showgirls for a second. I was oh, like, Oh, golly, golly, no. Okay. <laughs> Showgirls, I love Showgirls. I would never call it a good movie. Okay. Uh, a Dirty Shame is a good movie. I like A Dirty Shame, damn it. This is uh, John Waters. It was the last film he made, and uh, if you ask him, it will be the last movie he'll ever make. He's <sighs> just sort tragedy. of... He was trying to get films made for so long and it was such hard work and he never got, you know, exactly what he wanted that he just sort of said, well, you know, I'll just do my speaking tours. I'll write books. I'm good. Hollywood's been okay to me up to now, Uh, which is a pity because now we'll be robbed of Fruitcake, the John Waters Christmas movie that never got made. That's a fucking crime. Yeah. John John Waters is going to make a Christmas musical with Johnny Knoxville and a bunch of kids who steal meat. Uh, (laughs) That was the premise of the movie. It's about it, or- there's a script. Orphans. There's a script, right? There's, he wrote it. Did yeah. or is the music done? Did they write the they write the songs. No, I don't. I don't think so. Because I'm uh, telling you, man, John, if you just if you just want to executive produce this and let someone cool, you you pan pick them. I don't care. Yeah. Just I want to see this movie. And John Waters is fine. He, you know, thanks to you know the success of uh, Hairspray, the musical, he's set, he'll, he's he's, set all, for he's, set for he's good. Yeah. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, the, the last movie he made was unfortunately critically reviled and was not a big success. I think because it was rated NC-17. It's a very responsible movie. It's actually gives out this uh, the message that all sexual things are that are fun are okay so long as. No one's getting hurt and it's all consensual. Just mm. go for it. And it is the movie is more or less a litany. It's an encyclopedia entry, actually, of a <laughs> lot of different fetishes. Uh, Tracy Ullman plays a really conservative woman who uh, gets who gets a, a really severe concussion in a car accident. And that unlocks something in her brain and she becomes a sex maniac. And Johnny Knoxville, who lives in her town, uh, has, as it turns out, has been leading up this sort of cult of ultra sex maniacs who have all suffered similar head traumas and all of their fetishes have just been unlocked. And uh, so there's a mysophiliac, uh, somebody who's into dirt. There's uh, somebody who's into sploshing, which is like rubbing food on your body. Right. Uh, There we meet people who are into Roman showers. Look that one up yourself. Yeah, Uh, not at work. (laughs) or, Or what a plate job is. I had to look that one up. I don't, I wish I hadn't. Uh, We're not judging. But, uh, oh, goodness, no. But, but uh, you know, it's not for everybody. <laughs> not, the, the, okay. You know what? I'm not shaming you. No. It's just not my not. thing. It's not. And, I, and I again, would never think of shaming you if you're into that. And uh, again, but, things not to look up when you're at work. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Don't yeah. don't look it up on the work computer. Yeah. Or on your phone when you're on a bus in a public place. Yeah. Uh, but, yeah, John Waters just went through all of the encyclopedias he could. He talked to all of all of the... Uh, fetishists that he knew of which he knows quite a lot and just sure decided to write them all into the movie give, give them their moment to shine 
people who are into uh, uh, upper deckers and compulsive masturbators and all the rest. And just in that John Waters fashion celebrates them and says, this is just sort of this is all fun. Being horny all the time is great, isn't it? (laughs) It's so rare that you get a movie that just sort of celebrates sexual arousal in the way that A Dirty Shame does. And occasionally he'll even uh, like put almost, they're like William Castle style subliminal messages up on the screen where just in, in the incidental pan or the establishing shot, we'll just see the word boner appear on the screen. Like, uh, okay. <laughs> thanks, John. Yeah, thanks, John Waters. In case you weren't thinking about boners, yeah. now you are. And uh, other little subtle things. Uh, he got his production designer to decorate the trees in the Baltimore neighborhood where he was shooting with, like, sex organs. So there's, like, a tree with boobs on it just in the back. <laughs> it's like, you're thinking of sex all the time. And John Waters is, this is all great. We love all of this. All these, all the conservative people in the town who, all, who, who are referred to as neuters. Uh, are are the villain and anybody who just celebrates sex in all of its forms are the good guys. I love John Waters mm. so much. Yeah, and I actually I, I have a confession to make. I haven't seen every John Waters movie. Now that's not okay. that's not shameful. There's a lot of people who haven't seen a lot of movies, but yeah. I I love John Waters, <laughs> and I think one of the reasons why I haven't gone out of my way to see every single thing John Waters has done is because he's not making any movies anymore, and I yeah. want to like know keep, there are always keep some those out finite there. Number. Yeah, so I feel like there's a couple I haven't seen that. Yeah. I actually haven't seen Pecker. Uh, Pe- Pecker's a, pretty good too. Yeah, there's a couple I haven't seen, and it's actually mostly from the early stuff and like the really later stuff, like yeah. but like middle sex and very well. I, I do like that uh, he he's become such like an elder statesman of outsider and indie cinema that he yeah you know, like he hosts the Independent Spirit Awards or at least has, mm. and now some of his films are showing up with a Criterion collection. <laughs> I know. It's like multiple him. maniacs and female trouble have Criterion editions. Criterion is an actual stamp that actually means something to a lot of people, mm. and there's a lot of people who'd be like, oh, I didn't know this had artistic value. Interesting. Mm. And um, Female Trouble is his best movie, by the way. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's actually one of the ones I haven't seen. i got to get onto that. Mm. Yeah, right. You know what? Don't, don't save that one. Just, don't go, say, just, go, see, just go see it's Female that Trouble. Okay. It's just I will make really, really good. I will make a point of it. Um, uh, while we're on the topic mm. of uh, comedies that flew under the radar mm. and were great and were also really sex positive, um, one of my favorite comedies of the 2010s mm. came out to some positive reviews, but no fanfare. It didn't jumpstart careers, which is bullshit because mm-hmm. the, the cast is wonderful. And it didn't make money or it didn't make a lot of money. Mm. And it is, on top of just being incredibly funny and incredibly sweet and kind-hearted and one of the better, like, friendship comedies I've seen in the last ten years, it actually portrays sex work in a really fair and positive way. I am talking about the film For a Good Time Call. Oh, I didn't see For a Good Time Call. This is a very underappreciated film. I I will go to bat for this movie Mm -hmm. any day of the week. I recently rewatched it, um... And just like I was worried because I hadn't seen it since it came out that maybe it hadn't held up. No, it's still great. Uh, it mm. stars Ari Grainer, incredibly uh, talented comedian, and Lauren Miller Rogan. Um, and uh, Lauren Miller is uh, plays uh, a young woman. She's very career oriented, um, and she like I, th- I think she goes through a breakup at the beginning, and she's got to find a roommate fast. Mm. The roommate is someone who she actually went to college with, and they hated each other. 
and but it's a it's of convenience. That's yeah. you know, they they both need a roommate stat. Mm. So they're not going to get along together. And then what happens is she is struggling to find uh, to get her career started and she doesn't know what to do for money and that's when she finds out that Ari Grainer is uh, a phone sex operator. Hmm. That's what she does for money. Uh, in addition to a few other side hustles. Um, and uh, Lauren Miller actually realizes that A, there's nothing wrong with this. Mm-hmm. And B, this is a very lucrative business. And she wants in. So she ends up like finding a way to basically become an entrepreneur mm-hmm. with her increasingly best friend doing sex work. Okay. And it is about, you know, how that's kind of funny, mm. but it's also genuinely sexual. There's a lot of people who get a lot out of it. There's a lot of people who get a lot out of it that isn't sexual. Mm. And there's a dark side to phone sex operation. And I've, I've talked to people who've worked in it and, yeah, but, um, and there's, there is, but, and the movie, I've had a, a few friends who've done that as well. Yeah. But the, this movie isn't about that. This movie doesn't focus on that. This movie is about, uh, people who are actually, uh, finding motivation and success and friendship uh, outside of what a lot of people would consider to be the norm of Mm. business. And the way that operating a sex work business Mm. actually helps each of them grow into their own sexuality and their own confidence is really, really positive. And I don't want to ruin it, but I love, you know, it's a, it's a buddy comedy. There's gotta be a bit where like they get pushed apart towards the end Mm. But the, the part where they come back together at the end, and it's a comedy. You're not, I'm sorry, they don't like go out in a hail of bullets or anything. It's a, <laughs> it's a sweet movie about friendship. But with the part where they come together again is such a brilliant little piece of writing that I don't want to spoil it for you. Just know that I would like teach this in a class in terms of like how to do like a setup and a payoff. Nice. It's such a smart comedy. It's very, very funny. I highly recommend it. Check out for a good time call. I think nice. you'll thank me. All right, moving on. What's your next um, Well, I have one that's uh, that's also about sex work. Um, okay. And in fact, this is an incredibly sweet movie. It has uh, one of the best performances of the last uh, you know, 10 years or so. Mm. Uh, and uh, John Hawks got no recognition for The Sessions. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. The Sessions. Uh, yeah, great pick. The Sessions is a really good movie. It came out in 2012. And uh, it is about uh, a, a real-life poet named Mark O'Brien who... Uh, had to live in an iron lung. Hmm. His, his, he was paralyzed from the neck down thanks to uh, childhood polio. Uh, and he was able to, uh, thanks to some technological marvels sort of roll around town. He found a way to sort of control himself, even though he's like on his back in an iron lung mm-hmm. that led to a traffic problem. So he was essentially stuck inside a lot. Uh, and he's a poet. So he's incredibly eloquent and he's very self-effacing and very funny and very self-aware. Uh, and he is also very horny. Yeah. And he decides, uh, well, he's he's heard about something called a sex surrogate that is essentially somebody who uh, is, is like a sex therapist, someone who will teach you how to have sex, what sex is all all about, take you through it slowly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and, se- and not like on paper, but actually like, actually in, like in a, be in there a and, and actually way. touch yeah. you and, and be there in a, yeah, in a physical yeah. sort of way. The sex surrogate he hires is played by Helen Hunt. And the movie is about not just them talking about sex and trying to figure out, you know, the mechanics of it, but also mm-hmm. uh, his tendency to be sort of emotional and romantic about it. Mm-hmm. He's a very sweet fellow and he is not looking at this in sort of a mechanical way. Mm-hmm. He's trying to get the whole picture of what sex is and 
they begin to reveal things about themselves through their conversations and some things that might be crossing a few lines, uh, given the professional nature of their relationship. Yeah. Uh, so all of their scenes are great together. Really uh, frank. Like it's a really, they're, yeah, they're, 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 they're both really amazing. They're both yeah. really uh, And there's also wonderful scenes with William H. Macy. As his priest. Who, who's his priest. He's actually incredibly Catholic. Yeah. Uh, he, by his own description. And so he has to go to his priest and say, look, I'm, I'm going to hire this sex surrogate. What, what, like, am I going to go to hell for yeah, this? Like, what, what is, where does this fall on the level of sin? And Billy makes me see, like, the character, they have an actual conversation about it, but it all boils down to, you know, given the context, I think God's going to give you a free pass on this one. <laughs> yeah, the, the line is, God's going to give you, I think God's going to give you a pass on this. Yeah. Sometimes it's a little, sometimes it's cut and dry. Sometimes it's a little complicated like, and ultimately you're not doing anything bad. Like, now. like John Hawk seems to like, he's thought about this a lot more. It's like, clearly there's some sort of moral thing and you can sell it. The priest is like really uncomfortable talking yeah. about this. I'm, I'm, it is a very sweet, very touching, yeah. very moving movie that is very, very open about sex and sexual matters. I know a lot of people who've seen this movie mm. and, and really because it spoke about you know mm. sex uh, and through, and the, lens of, through yeah. the lens of disability in particular. Mm. Uh, and a lot of movies don't go there at all yeah. in the mainstream. And, and and the fact that it is so kind about it and that it is so thoughtful about it mm. is very appreciated. I'm upset that we had we had this brief period in like the mid 2010s where John Hawks was getting appreciated for the wonderful actor that he is. And he was yeah. in like a series of films one after another. Uh, got an Oscar nomination for Winter's Bone. He's terrifying in Martha Marcy May Marlene. Mm. He was in the sessions, got a lot of awards buzz. I don't think he got nominated for anything for it really, but he was in Freaked. He wasn't freaked. He, he, played, he, was, he played the cowboy. He played the cowboy. Freaked is a very funny fucking movie. That's not the <laughs> renaissance I was talking about. But it just feels like people just kind of like stopped giving him the, the those showy roles again. And I'm like, what the fuck is the matter with you? Give John Hawks amazing roles. Like, he, didn't, he didn't like start failing for any reason. No, he just, I mean, just started getting a little bit more low profile again. And I don't know what the fuck happened. Helen Hunt, who doesn't act as much as I would like her to, mm. is very talented in this as well. Yeah, the whole movie's really, really good. And it's a movie that I was pretty sure you'd put on your top 10 okay so it was in like my maybe pile like maybe if it looks right. like Whitney forgot to put this on I'll put it in my top 10 but I will leave it out just so I get to mention a few more films but right. it's an excellent film and I'm glad you picked it um okay let's uh what do you I'm want to say? I'm looking at the rest of my list, and there's a lot of there's a lot of heavy shit. Uh, I'm gonna, I, I, I'm gonna, got, I got some pretty heavy shit. Gonna, well, gonna, we're getting go, to the heavy stuff. We're getting to some heavier stuff, and uh, I didn't want to focus too much on the horror genre. Okay. Because I feel like, a, and not that the horror genre doesn't have incredible things to say about human sexuality, it often does. Uh, but a lot of it is focused on anxiety. A lot mm-hmm. of it is focused on fear. A lot of it is focused on morality. And that's a great conversation to have. And I didn't want to ignore that, but I could do an entire top 10 list mm. just of horror movies about sex. Yeah. yeah. And that's, again, no shortage whatsoever. I have a lot to pick from. And if I picked, I decided I was going to pick one sort of conventional kind of like, you know, scary horror movie uh, that I was, I figured I'm going to do one. It's got to be a Cronenberg film. <laughs> I have a Cronenberg film on my list. Is it it Shivers? No, it's Crash. Okay, we'll do them them both. We'll do them both right now. That's that's what our next ones will be. Shivers Mm. is uh, an early David Cronenberg film. Uh, And I remember when the movie, um, what's what's the James Gunn movie with the worms? Slither. Slither. When Slither came out, everyone was like, wait a minute, isn't this Shivers? 
and it's kind of shivers. They're both about little worms that mm-hmm. infect people. They both end up like huge killing sprees as like whole communities are taken over. Uh, however, uh, um, Slither is funny. Yeah, and Shivers is just Slith- fucking terrifying. Yeah, Slith- Slither is is a gore comedy, and uh, yeah, and it's a very good one, and I like mm. it a lot. But Shivers is a, Shivers is a is about fucking nightmare. People who, like lose their humanity. Yeah, basically, uh, what happens is there's a very small, like, sort of gated community. What was that? Um, what was that movie with uh, Tom Hiddleston? Oh, High Rise. High Rise. It's it's not unlike the community in High Rise, hmm. where it's very it's supposed to be like very self sustaining. Everyone gets everything you need is in this building. There's a doctor's office in the building. There's mm-hmm. gymnasiums. Like you never have to leave if you don't want to. So it's basically all the civilization is getting very sequestered, and they're getting sequestered in this very tall apartment slash mall type building. Um, that is also looking very clinical, and you start realizing that what we're they're really in is a petri dish. Mm-hmm. And at some point, a parasite gets released into this petri dish, and it just starts spreading like wildfire. Yeah. And, and and rather than and, turning and people, and it's really like a clinical uh, white walls, not a lot of decoration, yeah. very minimalist space. And Cronenberg, who would eventually, I think, become a more complicated visual stylist than this. I think he's mm. it's one of his earlier films, and I think. He was going for almost an industrial hygiene film kind of quality. It mm. looks very um, sterile, a yeah, lot of it. But yeah. I do think that adds to the to the discomfort. Um, but basically, this parasite starts squirming its way into people. That's a low-budget visual effect. It's like the mm. one thing in the movie where it's a little laughable. But whatever, you just just go with it. Um, it doesn't make every turn everybody into homicidal maniacs. It doesn't make everybody start eating human flesh. What it does is it turns everybody into violent hedonists. Mm-hmm. And they start losing their moral compass and they start responding to everything with visceral sexuality and violence. Mm-hmm. And it's so fucking uncomfortable <laughs> watching just all of the barriers break down. Yeah. yeah. And, I, and again, it, because it feels like almost like a scare film in a lot of ways, there's something about it that just, because there's no gloss or shine to it, it just feels like this, this just happened one week yeah. and Cronenberg filmed it. And it's just genuinely uncomfortable and creepy and it's kind of everything he's about in a nutshell. Everything about like the connection between yeah, yeah. the flesh and the mind. About um, you know this sort of fascination with the science of things that harm the the, the human body. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the, uh, so fucking creepy. I just don't even know what to go beyond that. I don't want to ruin everything. Yeah, but, the, like, the the term that critics tend to bring up when describing Cronenberg is is just body horror. He's the body horror guy. Yeah, and uh, yeah. It's not wrong. But yeah, it's it's very telling that he eventually made a film about Freud and Jung, uh, about sort of the that connection mm-hmm. and that disconnection, often between uh, the uh, the rational intellect mm-hmm. and the, the sort of overwhelming id that will eventually destroy you. You'll notice there's a lot of images of, at the beginning of Cronenberg movies, that are actually very clean and clinical, and then scenes at the end of Cronenberg movies when somebody's living in like a pit or a hovel or some sort of room that is like filthy and destroyed. Yeah. 
Uh, that's true in it's about uh, decay. Exactly, the fly so, is a good example. The, of the this. fly is yeah. a good example uh, that happens in uh, Videodrome, where he starts mm-hmm. out in a TV station, ends up in like this filthy apartment. Uh, uh, Jeremy Irons' uh, apartment, the two Jeremy Irons' apartment in Dead Ringers. Yeah, another yeah, good this, example. This sort yeah. of the, this this uh, rot that comes about from the mine sort of spreads out into the real world. Oh, the the. Um, Cosmopolis. Oh yeah. Start starts in a limousine and ends in a filthy apartment. He's he's got a thing for filthy apartments, doesn't he? Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's also true of Crash. Mm. Uh, Crash is about an orderly, shiny thing, a car, uh, being suddenly violently turned into a twisted, abstract uh, symbol of violence. A crashed car. Mm-hmm. Uh, Crash is a fetish film about a fetish that doesn't exist. It's about people who are sexually aroused specifically by car crashes. And not looking at them. Not being in being them, in them. Yeah. like that is the ultimate sexual high for these characters and david cronenberg films them in a, an incredibly clinical way throughout this entire movie he's he's not in there having fun with them this seems like uh it, it's not not really pathologizing them it doesn't feel like a scare film it just sort of like is taking biological field notes of uh this strange species that cronenberg seems to have discovered and it just sort of traces how a fetish so complicated and dangerous would kind of logically play itself out when these people find each other. What does the uh, community of people who celebrate this sort of thing look like? What do they do? Uh, And it eventually, like a lot of Cronenberg movies, becomes all about the obsession, getting it just right and letting this thing kind of consume you. Uh, I feel like this is a good... uh, it, It... I said it doesn't look like a scare film, but in theme, it kind of is in that it is sort of looking at what happens when sexual, I guess, uh, just your sexual desires, your sexual mania, for lack of a better word, just comes to overtake you and puts you in a more and more dangerous place. But it's easier to look at that in the abstract because it's not something presumably anybody in the audience would can relate to. Yeah, it's again, it's, it's an invented thing. Yeah, yeah. So you get that so, distance. Yeah, yeah. And and as far as I know, this didn't like in, invent a, a fetish. There aren't people out there who actually do celebrate this sort of thing. Yeah. Um, uh, yeah. The, the the sort of danger and fear of letting your sexuality sort of take control is now presented as something very literal and crash. Yeah, I feel like we don't discuss enough how David Cronenberg has throughout a lot of his movies. Mm. Uh, actually talked about sexuality. I think it's because for a lot of his career, he was very clinical about it. Mm-hmm. It didn't seem like he was making erotica. No. So it didn't necessarily seem like the thing to focus on, but he really has. And I think you were right to bring up a dangerous method, his mm-hmm. film about Jung and Freud, uh, which I also came very close to putting on this list. It was between that and shivers. Um, and yeah, I think as he's like grown as a filmmaker in the last few films, he's been exclu- more exclusively focusing on the mind, and you realize just how interconnected all of these things mm-hmm. are through his uh, filmography. And yeah, what damn interesting filmmaker! <laughs> For sure, even when he's not making good movies, like that was it. Maps to the was it Maps to the Stars? Was the... I, yeah, I didn't see Maps to the Stars. That yeah, it's that's not what that I heard. Great. It's an interesting stuff in it, but it doesn't quite and, pull and, together. And I like Cosmopolis, yeah. but I know I'm in like. A, Deep minority there. I, I admire it more than I like it, but mm-hmm. fair enough. Um, but yeah, anyway, fascinating filmmaker. I'm, I'm glad mm-hmm. we each were able to make some room for him. Um, I'm going to talk about a film that I think 
when it initially came out, made some waves, and then I haven't heard it discussed very often since. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm going to talk about Peter Strickland's The Duke of Burgundy. Oh, I like The Duke of Burgundy. Really that's, interesting that's, film. That's, that's on my runner's up. Yeah, yeah. A really interesting film mm-hmm. about... Um, Peter Strickland, as a filmmaker, seems very influenced by uh, sort of the Eurosleaze genres. Um, stuff like Giallo or the mm-hmm. works of Jess Franco, which straddled the line between being just exploitative sexuality and actually being like intelligent cinema about mm. various fetishes and horror and sexuality. Um, with the Duke of Burgundy, he made a really interesting film and it takes place in a world um, in Europe in a community which seems to live a little outside of reality. There are no men. All of the women that we meet in this town, all of them are lepidopterists. <laughs> Like, literally, it's a lepidoptery <laughs> town. You know how some towns, it's like, yeah, we got the sawmill, and everything is either, everyone either works at the sawmill, or they support the people who work at the sawmill by, like, you know, being the places where the sawmill people, workers, go to eat or whatever. Like, But it's a sawmill that keeps everything going. It's like that, but lepidoptery. <laughs> and lepidoptery mm. is collecting butterflies. That's and, a weird. And, that's a weird setup to start. And I and, love it. And everybody dresses like they're in the Fassbender film, The Bitter Tears of Petra von Kant, and yeah. that they have these really outlandish, elaborate outfits that they're like tight, strict Victorian inflected dresses, but mm-hmm. with like an erotic power to them. Yeah, um, and it is about uh, the sexual relationship between uh, two women: an older woman played by Sibse Babet Knudsen, and uh, a younger woman played by Chiara Donna, uh, and. And when we introduce to them in the film, we see that Chiara Donna is like being hired as like the maid mm-hmm. in this household, and Sidza Babbitt Knudsen is um very strict in a very fetishistic way about dominating this young woman. Yeah. And we go through this very erotic, very kinky BDSM relationship, and then we go through the same thing again, except we realize that that entire scenario has been scripted uh, by uh, Chiara Donna's character. Mm. And she's actually, um, you know, again, a sub-dom relationship. The sub actually has the power. Mm. And so we realize that this is a very rigidly sexually structured relationship that they have. And that the living under such a specific sexual code mm-hmm. is starting to cause cracks in the relationship yeah. and they obviously care about each other but one of them has very specific sexual needs and the other one is happy to go along with it but they've been going along with it so much that they're starting to lose their own identity yeah. and so even though this is a very arch and fetishistic portrayal of a relationship that's so, actually do, real relationship dynamics that are being explored it doesn't even, really it, fascinating it doesn't even look like sex most of the time yeah but yeah that's that's sort of what their relationship has come to be is yes yeah. playing out this subdom scenario and 24 when, hours and a day. when one person is super duper into it mm. and another person is interested and enjoying it but also has other interests and they're not being met and they're not being nurtured mm. and it can create sort of a schism yeah and it's so fascinating to see this movie which is about fetish which is about kink which is about bdsm which is about a very specific sexual lifestyle and it understands the appeal and sexual allure of that mm. but it also understands that at some level it is also a relationship and there's a lot of depth to it and when you compare it to something like the 50 shades movies and oh, I know God. it's so and I know it's so it's such a low it's such a, a low blow to pick on the 50 shades movies and I'm not going to go all out of my way mm. but 
the, that's the romance novel version of it. Mm. And it's not necessarily a very thoughtful romance novel. Um, this is a more interesting portrayal of that kind of relationship. It understands the appeal, but it also understands the complexity and the downsides. Mm. And the performances are wonderful. The cinematography is astounding. It's a <laughs> it really is. great movie, and I wish it got. I wish it had more of an audience because I feel like it it briefly made some waves, and then just the it crested and receded, and it never mm-hmm. quite came back. Did you uh, ever see In Fabric? Peter no, I heard it was. Movie. I heard it was good about the killer dress. Yeah, <laughs> like. Not, not you. Don't just put it on and you kill people. Like the dress itself kills you. Yeah, that, it, the, it's pretty astonishing. I what, really liked In Fabric. What was that? What was that movie with um, uh, Heather Langenkamp and um, Anthony Perkins? We did it for a podcast. Oh, on right, the, the TV movie. Um, yeah. Oh, was it like something? It was like this dress could kill or something. Yeah, it had a really generic title like Dress to Kill or something. Yeah, it was, it was, that was the, that was the Toby Hooper movie. Yeah, it was Toby Hooper. Because the the dress was made of uh, like a, a haunted piece of fabric that was salvaged from like an ancient sarcophagus or something. Yeah, it was like a it was like a cult sacrifice shroud. Yeah, and, and yeah. Then somebody for whatever reason made made off with uh, this this shroud and sewed it into a like a sexy cocktail dress. I I, I had mixed up in my head. Mm. Uh, Heather Langenkamp and Machen Amick from uh, Twin Peaks. Oh, so okay, Machen yeah. Amick. It was Machen Amick. Yeah. Uh, and it's called I'm Dangerous Tonight. And I, I remember hearing. Right. I remember hearing about In Fabric, and I'm like, Did Peter Strickland remake I'm Dangerous Tonight? He That's sure, a weird choice. Yeah, but it it has like a lot, like it has shifting protagonists because the dress kills people off. So it, yeah. it's really a fascinating film. Go see In Fabric. It's I, not not the kind of fetish movie as. As uh, the Duke of Burgundy, but the Duke of Burgundy yeah. is is also really well. It's, it sounds really up his alley because again, every, every his other two movies were very much like just again Euro sleaze kind of movies, but through an American art house kind of lens. And uh, his film Barbarian Sound Studio is really astounding. And if you if I didn't you, see Barbarian Sound you should, Studio, you would I, dig it. It's it's so one much. it's one I've, I kind of feel bad about missing. If you love if you love Italian giallos hmm. and sound design. <laughs> Is that the movie for you? Yeah. That's a small audience, but by God, they're going to love that movie. They're going to cater to you. That's, what's your next pick? Um, uh, well, I guess I'm one ahead of you, but I'll, I'll, I'll go next. Um, oh, no, because uh, I think you're fine. Uh, my next film is uh, also about a woman with uh, very particular fetishes. Uh, she, the main character of this movie has recurring fantasies of being tied to a tree and caked with mud. Like, uh, mm. otherwise she lives in a pretty sterile environment. Her marriage is not very passion is not, not full of a lot of passion. Uh, her, like her husband doesn't really pay a lot of attention to her and she doesn't seem to be full in contact with her own sexuality other than these fantasies. But she decides kind of on a whim to become the belle du jour. And the movie <laughs> is belle du jour. I was and, waiting to see how you're going to build to that. And and that is, uh, she decides to become a sex worker and explore her sexuality that way and sort of trying to essentially bend to the whims of whoever her client is and figure out sort of who she is in so doing. And she ends up finding, a, there's a mysterious businessman who comes to see her and he brings with him a little box. And what's in the box? Uh, director Luis Bunuel never shows us, but it's unlocking something in her. Is it, you know, some sort of, is it a piece of sexual equipment? Is it dirty pictures? We never really know what it is, but uh, it, it is this really um, 
in a blue velvet sort of way, is trying to essentially pull back the facade of decency that the bourgeois have tried to cloak themselves in Mm. and reveal that there is a lot of sex and passion and kink uh, hiding underneath all of this. Uh, Bunuel was was maybe one of the most political of all filmmakers who was always trying to make a very pointed political point with all of his movies. Well, that's what surrealism uh, is about, really. It's about flying in the face Mm. of... All convention. And specifically, though, he was criticizing class with something like Belle du Jour. Mm. This notion that being decent also means being kind of sexless. And how, you know, you can't be sexless because, you know, we're... Belle Belle du Jour can't be sexless because she has a lot of sexual desire. She has a lot of kink in her. And this is about sort of revealing that all of these kinks and all of these uh, sex workers exist around you. And it's all... uh, it's all kind of taking down the quote well mannered uh, bourgeoisie uh, down a peg. Uh, he did he did this a lot. He did this in Exterminating Angel. What happens when a bunch of bourgeois people are locked in a dining room, to, or they're not locked in? They just go into a dining room together, and then for some reason they just can't leave. And it's about how all, everything just sort of breaks down when they're stuck at the same dinner party forever. Uh, that's a recurring motif in The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie, uh, yeah. one of my favorite movies uh, about movie. how uh, this group of rich people are, this is the running gag, they always try to sit down for dinner and something weird happens that ups, that uh, interrupts them. They go yeah. to a restaurant and they sit down and it turns out that the chef has just died. And everybody's in mourning in the restaurant <laughs> and they're all like crying, <laughs> trying to serve them, here's your plate. <laughs> And they bring the chef out into the dining room with them, like this dead guy. And it's like, oh, there he is. Okay, here's your food. And they're like, look, we can't do this anymore. It's like a Monty Python sketch. Yeah. The one with the one with the dirty fork. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, I'm so sorry about the fork. I'm so sorry. Kind of you to say that it is a, but a speck. To me, it is a mountain, a huge bowl of pus. Uh, in one, yeah, one scene, they go to have dinner and they sit down at a dinner table. It's like, wait a minute, this food is made of plaster. And then a curtain opens behind them and they're on stage and everybody's watching them. <laughs> it, it's like really cartoony. It's really great. And I feel like Belle du Jour is, it, it's less comedic, but it's in line with that. Like yeah. we're going to pull the curtain back and show that the bourgeois do have kinks mm-hmm. and they are, they can be just as freaky as the rest of us, nice. uh, more or less. So well, I really like Belle du Jour. Well, if you like mm-hmm. movies with overt social messaging oh geez if you like subtlety you're you're gonna love the films of ken russell <laughs> if, oh if i love subtlety yeah if you love yeah. subtlety you're gonna love you're gonna the love films ken, of ken, ken russell, russell <laughs> who's known for his light touch and nuanced approach to films like tommy he was and the, the layer of the white he worm. was the ozu of his time <laughs> uh, <laughs> Uh, Ken Russell, if you don't know the name, is a filmmaker who was very in your face. Oh, golly, yes. Very much about counterculture. And I would say there's a decent argument to be made that his best film, I haven't seen all of his movies, Mm -hmm. but of the films that I've seen, I think there's a decent argument to be made that his best film is The Devils. You know what? I haven't seen The Devils. You've never seen The Devils? No, I know. that. Which is nothing but a failing on my part. I'm not going to shame you for it. I'm just surprised. It seems like something you'd be into. It's totally up my alley, and I just have never gotten around to it. Okay, so The Devils. The Devils is this fantastic film from 1971, and this was a really controversial film when it came out. That was still... Like, movies are starting to get more violent and more in-your-face and more Mm -hmm. sexual, and Ken Russell was like... Let's let's jump ahead of that curve, shall we? Um, but it's actually uh, based on a true story about um, a 17th century uh, Roman Catholic priest 
who was accused of witchcraft mm. uh, by uh, uh, by by nuns basically. Mm. And so the idea is that this priest who was played in the film by Oliver Reed, who mm. just oozes testosterone. <laughs> like he might not always Al- look like the most sexual performer, but mm. he's very powerful. Yeah. I think whenever he's allowed to portray a sexual character. And so he plays a priest. This priest has a lot of power in this town. Uh, and this is again, 17th century. And, He's also he's also fucking. He's also having sex. <laughs> and uh there is a, a nun played by Vanessa Redgrave who is deeply in lust with him mm. and is driven past the breaking point by his complete he completely ignores her, his he sex mm. with other people. And then finally this turns this this sort of sexual stifling mm. of the nuns in this community turns into um, uh, a mass hysteria mm-hmm. to the extent that they all start having wild, violent, sacrilegious orgies. <laughs> and the French government goes to investigate this and they use this event and this um, absolute sort of breakdown of the conservative morality of the Catholic church as a political excuse to remove urban Grandier, Mm. uh, Oliver Reed's character from power and turn him into a kind of a martyr for sexuality. Um, It's like the Marquis de Sade, I think I've I've, I've heard, I've heard heard the film described as being Sadian. There's, there's definitely there's in terms of like how blunt it is with its political Mm. messaging. Sure. Mm. In terms of its sexuality. I mean the, the extended cut, is kinkier and crazier. Mm. Um, but uh, yeah, I, I would say it tracks. I think it's better than the Marquis de Sade stuff that I've read. <laughs> uh, my favorite thing about the movie Quills, which is not on my list, mm. but it is a pretty good movie, uh, is uh, is the part when Joaquin Phoenix plays a priest who is uh, keeping the Marquis de Sade in a mental institution to like keep him out of society basically. Mm. And there's a bit where the Marquis de Sade has managed to sneak out a novel that he's written. And it's been published on the black market and Joaquin Phoenix is of course in trouble for this because he was mm. supposed to keep this guy under wraps and he comes in and he's just like, Oh, you found my book. Cause it's by, by Jeffrey Rush. Mm. He said, it sounds Australian. Oh, you found my book. <laughs> yes. What did you think? And he's like, I read it. It sucks. <laughs> like, <laughs> yes, but it's very shocking. Who cares? It's, it's just bad it's writing. Just a bad, yeah, you, you wrote just, a bad book, Petey. Like that's what you did. They're not good. Well, <laughs> Maybe and, the original language. Maybe they're more poetic. But and, like and, in the I translations I've read, they're not good books. And in that same scene, he's like, "Well, you know, here's something you can read. Here's a Bible." And he's trying to to mm. sell more morality, but at the same time, he's just trying to say, "Here's some like more poetic writing." Yeah. <laughs> You got better books, dude. And he points like, <laughs> and he points out you write more than you read. That's irresponsible. <laughs> yeah, that's Garth Marenghi's Dark Place. Mm. Remember that show? I didn't see it, but yeah. Oh my god, it's no, amazing. You, you brought it up account. a lot. Though, uh, yeah. Real fast, if you don't know it, it's mm. about a, a, a TV series that was made in the eighties. Mm. It wasn't. It's a fake show. Uh, that was like the brainchild of this egomaniacal Stephen King knockoff, um, and um, it's just absolutely hilarious and. He, it's constantly interrupted by interviews with the author saying really, you know, being a braggart and saying things like, I am one of the few authors who has written more books than he's read. <laughs> and he's so proud of that. It's one of my favorite lines in anything. But um, in any case, The Devils, um, it's shocking. It's mm. intentionally shocking, obviously. Um, but it's actually, it's also really smart and it's really powerful. 
And I think Ken Russell can sometimes get sidetracked by being counterculture and sometimes forget to tell a story. And this is not <laughs> which, one of those times. Which is fine. Which is fine. Mm-hmm. I think if any filmmaker gets away with it, he's one of them. But I think this is actually one of the, What's weird is that this is still considered maybe his most controversial film. I find it to be his most accessible film. It's a biopic. <laughs> it's a biopic about fucked up shit, but it's still mm-hmm. a biopic. Like, it's still a real... It's it, In air quotes, real movie. Yeah, it's whereas like, something like Layer of the White Worm is just this weird fucking freakout. <laughs> I love the Layer of the White Worm. Great fucking movie, but yeah. it's a weird fucking fr- gothic. Go- tell me what fucking happens in that movie after halfway through. Yeah, like the, the first third, you think you got a handle on it, and after yeah. a while, it's like, what? Oh wait, you took too much laudanum. Did I take laudanum? Oh damn! The, like the whole movie took laudanum. Like yeah. some movies are horny. This movie just took too much laudanum. Like <laughs> anyway, but uh, the Devil's fantastic. Mm. The version is that is sporadically available in America is usually the heavily cut version. Yeah, there is a longer version um and i think there's like some fabled like extensive cut or something that never yeah the, there there yeah. is a director's cut that, that i don't think it's ever been released anywhere and yeah some people have claimed but there are longer yeah. cuts and i've seen one of the longer cuts and it is better yeah. uh so uh, what's your next pick um hmm, what do i want to talk about um this is one i bring up a lot as uh, sort of a classic example of a bad ending but it's uh, lars von Trier's nymphomaniac the bad ending kept it off the even, bad, yeah. it kept it from even being considered yeah, for me um, but anyway it was released in two parts so at the very least maybe i can say nymphomaniac part one uh, <laughs> it doesn't will, have the bad ending for posterity i will put in nymphomaniac part one as your answer okay <laughs> But uh, Lars von Trier uh, was going through a lot of dark places for, I mean, he always does, but uh, he was uh, wrestling with a very crippling depression and made several movies about his experience. Uh, One was very literal, it was called Melancholia, uh, where depression is envisioned as a literal planet in the heavens that's going to collide with Earth and destroy everything. Uh, In Nymphomaniac, he's dealing with sort of the way uh, depression and sex can often get a little bit conflated uh, in the mind of the depressed person. Mm. Uh, He deals that with a lot more directly in something like Antichrist, but Antichrist is so repellent, it's kind of hard to recommend. Yeah. Uh, It's just, like, it has a lot of important ideas in it, but it's really difficult to watch. Sometimes things are good or not, they're just a tough sit. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Nymphomaniac, I feel, is actually a lot more, until the ending, uh, very warm and open and accepting. Uh, Charlotte Gainsbourg plays a character who describes herself as a nymphomaniac. Mm-hmm. And she's uh, told in the film that that's like, that's yeah, like not that, a great she, term she for it, go, but yeah. she embraces that to her, that's what she is. Yeah, she, yeah. she goes to a self-help meeting later in the movie and they, they say, no, you're a sex addict. She's like, no, I'm, I am a nymphomaniac. Sex addict sounds way too clinical. And it is about her sexual journey from uh, being a, a young woman all the way into her adulthood, how... And how her un- unending and overwhelming lust for everyone and everything has informed every decision she's made in her life. And how she has come to accept at the beginning of the movie that this has made her an awful person. All of, all of her lust and all of her decisions has just sort of led her down this dark moral path and she just doesn't care about anything anymore. She's felt nothing but pain and betrayal at the hands of her own sexuality. And the movie uh, is told in this flashback structure where she uh, is found injured in the street by another man who is uh, self-described asexual. Mm -hmm. He doesn't feel sexual desire. He had some romances, but yeah, he he just, sex is not interesting to him. So we have the nymphomaniac and the asexual having a conversation about her life and about how he starts to give a little bit more perspective on her life, about how everything she's done, no matter how depraved it seems to her, 
is actually coming from a very decent place. And mm-hmm. by the time it's we very get human, yeah. yeah, by the time we get to the end before the ending, uh, everything has come to this really perfect spot where everybody is finally kind of accepting and open and forgiving of themselves. Yeah, even though over the course of the mm. film, and the thing that I like about the movie mm. until the ending. Mm. Uh, is that it's not normally it feels like sometimes films you'd wish they would just sort of pick like movies are about someone's whole life you wish they Mm. would just sort of pick a chapter and focus on it yeah but by focusing on all of the character's life and to Mm. the variety of relationships that she has and the variety of Mm. uh, sort of states of being that she's been in and the way that she has accepted her sexuality or denied it at certain times or tried different avenues of sexual release um you really get a sense of someone who this is the through line of their life is mm. wrestling with their sexuality yeah. and sometimes accepting it, sometimes denying it, sometimes feeling bad, sometimes not. And she's been through some shit. She's mm. seen some rough shit. She's lived through some rough shit. And in some cases she's even caused it. So, yeah. yeah. And, and so having that sort of sense of understanding and catharsis for someone who has led one hell of a life. Mm-hmm. Um, it was really quite beautiful until the last 30 seconds. Yeah. The, and the, the last 30 seconds is this just horrendous, adolescent, stupidly nihilistic, tacked on ending that is completely it be- unnecessary. It, it betrays the entire premise of the film. Yeah. yeah. And one could argue that like, oh, it makes you rethink the whole film. Yeah. Here's the problem. Now that I rethink the whole film, the whole film sucks now. It doesn't make you rethink the whole film because it doesn't have anything to do with the rest of the film. If it does, there's well, this but, big, like but, uh, several big character betrayals that just well, don't make sense it, anywhere. For me, the thing is, if you look at that ending and then mm. you look at everything that came before it in terms of how it is framed, mm. you realize just how much of the film feels like a lie and not an interesting lie. Yeah. Not a lie that makes you go, oh, how profound, or mm. oh, I don't know what I can what I can believe anymore. But just a lie that was, and so you were fucking with us. Yeah, yeah. And it's it feels like I've heard this described, and with I, I can't without I can't go into detail and explain this. I've mm. heard some people say that like, oh, it's a metaphor for like film critics or whatever. And I'm like, oh. then why would you sabotage your whole fucking movie? A long fucking movie yeah, with really profound moments and characters. Like, it's a, it's and, a five hour film. Yeah, yeah. Like why would you do, go through all of that just to make a cheap jab? Mm. That's also making your movie shitty. Even if it is intentional. Like I've never heard a good justification for that ending yeah. that makes me appreciate it again because I was with it. And I thought it was really interesting and weirdly sensitive for Lars von Trier until that fucking ending. And mm. it just drove me up the fucking wall. So, yeah, I'm with you on this. I'm glad I'm not alone on that. That drives me up the wall. Um, but you're right. Up until then, it's it's a very interesting movie, and there's a lot of wonderful stuff in it. Mm. And, again, I can't in good conscience put it on my list because just I just that, feel like it's... That ret- ending is so, such I, a betrayal. I think the ending retroactively hurts that even the first film. I can't even appreciate it mm. in a vacuum anymore. It's like, you know, if there was, like, a sequel to Sleepless in Seattle where you found out that, like, yeah, Meg Ryan and Tom Hanks ended up together, but later on she, like killed him and ate him and be like <laughs> okay that's interesting but it kind of makes that end first movie not so cute so anyway moving on mm. uh and, and another sorry some of these movies are kind of dour i wanted maybe i should have spaced out the cute ones but um let's talk about eyes wide shut okay eyes wide shut's a great fucking movie it's on it's on my list is it really it's my number one. Oh well let's let's talk about eyes wide shut later all right fine let's move 
<laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, it's fine. Eyes Wide Shut is a great movie. Eyes Wide Shut is a great movie. We'll save the full conversation of Eyes Wide Shut for a little bit later. Um, all right. Well, then I'll take another one then. Um, scanning through my Rolodex here. Um, um, okay. Let's talk about Body Heat. <laughs> That's on my runner's up. Yeah, okay. Body Heat's a really great one. Uh, Body Heat is uh, it's a noir film. It's, it a, cri- it's a crime movie. It's yeah. about uh, betrayal and murder and, and embezzling inheritance. Yeah. Uh, in terms of its story, uh, and it takes a lot of its plot uh, from a long uh, that at the point the movie was made already a long tradition of noir films. Specifically, most importantly, mm. Double Indemnity and mm. The Postman Always Rings Twice. Just, yeah, specifically those, those two. Those two are very now, much in the DNA of the film. You look at old noir films from the 1940s, and you'll see a lot of bubbling sexuality. It's about seduction. It's about mm. feeling so overwhelmed by sex that you're willing to commit crimes over it. The problem is films in the 1940s were beholden to the the Hays Code, mm-hmm. and there weren't sex scenes in those movies. Mm-hmm. The sex was always coded with things like cigarettes and mm-hmm. uh, hairdos and outfits and uh, low lighting and uh, certain kinds of romantic angles. Metaphor. Awesome to look, but yeah, uh, awesome to look at, but also metaphors. Body Heat finally just says, no, if, if we're going to have to be convinced that somebody's willing to commit a crime for lust... We need to see the sex. In fact, we need to see just how good it is. Yeah, that's something that... And I love Double Mm. Indemnity. Double Indemnity is phenomenal. Mm. And I think some Mm. people I've said, like, have said that, like, oh, it's kind of hard to get into Double Indemnity because it's so... It's not overtly sexual. And I think Mm. that smolder, Mm. that's like, come on, we're going to have sex, right? (laughs) We're going to do it? Like, I think that is kind of where the movie lives and that's Mm. the justification. Whereas Body Heat is allowed to take that story of someone who throws away their entire life <laughs> because they wanted to fuck so bad. Yeah, yeah. That's the thing. That's that's what this movie is about sexuality. It's not about the crime that gets committed. It's not about, you know, the femme fatale aspect. It is, but like what it's really about is someone who gets so turned on that they make bad choices. And mm-hmm. that's something that a lot of people can identify with. Yeah. A lot um, of people have been so turned on that, you know, Ah, I didn't notice the red flags in this relationship. Right. Or, oh, I shouldn't have spent all that money going to Vegas or whatever. But like, or, or uh, to, to go back to what you were talking about, that's that's kind of what phone sex is all about. Can be trying yeah. trying to, uh, and this comes directly from uh, people I know who have worked in in mm-hmm. phone sex. Uh, that the goal is to keep them on the line. Yeah. Because you're the paying for every up. minute. Keep yeah. the caller uh, uh, in a lustful state where they're uh, willing to let their phone bill rack up, essentially. Yeah. Like, exactly. ig- ignore the phone bill. Be horny enough to ignore the phone bill, essentially. Yeah, that's that's mm. the job. That's Well, that's an important part of the job anyway. Yeah. Um, and so in Body Heat, which stars uh, William Hurt and Kathleen Turner, William mm. Hurt is a lawyer, uh, and it's in a heat wave. So everyone is musty. Everyone is sweaty. Everyone is like always like one step away from ripping off their shirt in public because it's so hot. Mm. And he meets a young, sensuous woman played by Kathleen Turner in her screen debut. <laughs> Holy shit. <laughs> she just fucking like jumps off the screen and like punches you in the face. I'm a great actor. I'm like, yes, you are Kathleen. Jesus. Weird and, metaphor. And, and she was and she was spoofing the image in this film like the next year. Yeah, she, her second her second or third film was, was, was The Man with Two Brains. Man with Two Brains, where she plays like a similar femme fatale, but in this broad comedy now. It's so fucking funny in that movie. That, that whole movie is just weird and it's funny and so great. Fucking great. I love The Man with Two Brains. Um, but in any case, she she's married 
and he wants to have sex with her so much that he's willing to do away with her husband. Mm. And of course it goes really fucking bad because of course it is. And that's the thing. A lot of the movies that are in the DNA of body heat mm. stem from the Hays Code. So even if they were about sexuality, they existed in a universe where crime had to be punished. Mm. A criminal couldn't just get away with it at the end. There needed to be some sort of karmic reversal. Um, and as a result of that, sex has in a lot of American culture mm. been directly connected to a immorality mm. uh, and B being punished for it. Yeah. You will be punished if you let sexuality run your life too much. Um, not the best mentality to go into your life, but um, body heat is one of the ones where I feel like they actually really get away with it because it's so intensely sensual. Mm. They do such a great job of making us believe in the intensity of the sexual relationship. And there is, mm. again, it's an R-rated movie. It's not an X-rated movie, but there's a lot of sex in it. And mm. it's really heated, intense sex. Um, that it's the rare occasion in which I think anyone could watch this movie and go, mm. yeah, this guy fucked up his whole life because he was turned on. But I also get it. <laughs> yeah, you have to... The audience kind of understands. That's the deal. Like, it's so difficult to make the audience, like, understand why someone would make terrible life choices sometimes. Mm. The whole plot revolves around this person risking everything to commit a crime. And Mm. if you are not on board with the motive, Mm. the whole movie just falls apart. Body Heat is about dangerous sexuality in that you are throwing (laughs) your whole life away just because you're so turned on by somebody. Mm. That is hard to convey. And Lawrence Kasdan conveys it beautifully. Mm. It's a really, really... I think it's one of the great film wars. We yeah. did a film war list in the Iron List. It ranked very highly. Yeah. Uh, I, I, um, here's a good double feature with Body Heat. And stay with me on this. I'm listening. I'm listening. Hellraiser. Yes. Uh, Hellraiser is about that exact same thing. It is Hellraiser is about, on your list? Hell, it is. Okay. I was, I was wondering if that was your segue. That's great. Yeah. Um, okay. Great, great pick. Jesus Hell, Christ. Hell, Hellraiser is one of... <laughs> didn't even think of this. Hellraiser and Hellraiser 2 are some of my favorite horror movies of the 1980s, maybe of all time. Hellraiser 2 is surreal and awesome. Hellraiser is a little bit more intimate in that it's about... Oh, essentially, it's about a woman who has previously had an affair with her husband's brother. Uh, her husband's a little bit kind of a, a boring conservative guy. Husband's brother is... Like, rough trade straight out of Clive Barker's fantasies. Yeah. Like, he dresses in leather. He's like a biker guy who wears an open leather jacket, no shirt, and leather pants, and there's the five o'clock shadow. The kind of guy, like, she, there's a scene where she opens the door, and he's just standing there. He's standing there, in the rain. Like, he's all dripping like, wet. right out of the cover of a romance mm. novel. And, like, like his, I'll, I'll, I forget what his dialogue is, but it's basically just like, hi, I'm your husband's brother. We're gonna fuck now. Yeah. And you're like, okay. And she's like, yeah. And and he's into like really rough, kinky stuff. And he incorporates like switch blades and just all, all this yeah. rough stuff. And she, she is so turned on by this guy's overwhelming sexuality that she has this really intense affair. And it's never explained why they, they stop having their affair. But he is, uh, Frank, the, the brother, uh, moved into a house and in his uh, search for the ultimate sensual pleasure has found a magical puzzle box that summons sadomasochists from hell and who uh, have essentially turned rending somebody's body physically into a kink, essentially. And yeah. when they move back in, there's this really uh, 
amazing effect sequence where he grows up out of the floor after some blood is spilled where he died. He goes from like a drop of blood and like from that drop of blood mm. spurts out into a skeleton and that yeah, skeleton like, starts like a brain grows up and yeah like pieces oh, are climbing it's together so cool. it's, and it's all practical it's all goopy and gross it's like uh, it's, that yeah. scene and the car repairing itself in Christine are like mm. maybe the two best visual effects sequences of the 80s yeah, for yeah, me yeah. Like, and, uh, so fucking cool but when he, it, he can't walk like he didn't grow back all the way though he's it's kind of like this weird skinless monster and he reveals himself to Julia and she realizes, wait a minute, if I feed this guy more blood, we can fuck again. And it's the whole movie is just about that. Yeah. It's about the overwhelming power of lust. Yeah. And what you're willing to do to sate the soulless incubus who lives in your attic just so you can have sex with them again. I think that that's the thing I think people don't always. It's, it's like uh, Hellraiser is to the Hellraiser franchise mm. what the first Friday the 13th is, mm. which is like. It, all the stuff you like is in there, but the emphasis was really different the first time out. Yeah. Pinhead and all those Cenobites and all that hell imagery, that's there. It's like 10% of the movie at most. Mm. This is actually its a, own thing. The, the, the Cenobites are such a striking monster. Like, they're such a... a, a they're a, such a, a wonderfully unique design. And just so... So, uh, uh, so different from any of the other monsters you see in other movies. Yeah. People say on like, what if, what if like Freddie and Jason fought? Well, Freddie and Jason, you know, are, are serial killers who stalk and rend teenagers. Mm. Freddie does it supernaturally, but mm. I can see why people would want to compare those two. Yeah. They, 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 uh, they get the same job done. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, the, the lead Ceno- the Cenobites from Hellraiser have a completely different MO. Yeah. Until you get to Hellraiser 3. Uh, but <laughs> and it, then we get away from Hellraiser it, 3. Ignore we Hellraiser, Hellraiser 3 ever happened. Yeah, and, and then they made Hellraiser 4 saying, okay, here's why you behave that way in Hellraiser 3. There's actually reasons we're really trying to cover our asses yeah. here. And then we're going to do a whole bunch of straight-to-video sequels where we're going to, nothing makes any sense anymore. No, now, now it's like Judeo, Judeo-Christian yeah, it's, version of hell now. That's it. Skip them all. Mm. You, you no. Uh, you, you've watched them if you really want to, but you're going to see the same movie over and over again. It's, it's, the Hellraiser it's, franchise goes yeah, off f- real f- quick. F- five through ten, or just don't bother. Hellraiser yeah. one, two, and four. That's where we live. <laughs> four gets a bad rap. Four gets a bad rap. It's it's actually rather and it, innovative and interesting. And, and, and it was a troubled production. The director took his name off, so it's a, technically an Alan yeah. Smithy film, but it, it actually does some interesting things. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, the, that first Hellraiser is all about lust, and it is all about uh, how... Your body is your uh, your religion, essentially. I feel like Clive Barker was probably a big Walt Whitman fan. You know, the I sing mm. the body electric sort of thing. That your yeah. body is is the deity, and everything you feel, you are the deity of this old this new sort of religion that you're forming. And if you read a lot of Clive Barker's literature, that's a common theme. That your body and your specifically your fluids, your blood, and other things. Uh, are the things that possess all of the magic powers that can like rend dimensions asunder. Uh, he's an odd, an odd author in a lot of ways. <laughs> we, uh, we, we've talked a lot. Boy, man, yeah. I tell you, man, you really get a good sense of like how like society at large looks mm. at sexuality. And you realize what are the best films ever made about sex? And we've mm. done a lot of films about shame. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of yeah, films yeah. about violence and, and misery and people mm-hmm. killing in order to have sex. And uh, that's not the, my next film. My okay. next film was a little bit more romantic than that, but it's a little more complex than the typical romance mm. film. Um, and that is uh, Stephen Shainberg's secretary. Oh, that's on my runners up. I think it's a very sweet mm. film, but it's a very it's a film about unusually sweet mm. behavior. Uh, Secretary stars Maggie Gyllenhaal, 
as a young woman who is coming into and discovering her own kink. And she ends up getting a job working in an office for James Spader, who very much knows what he's into hmm. in terms of BDSM. He's yeah. living, he's interested, he's very interested in being a dom. However, it's, it's, it's sort of like a Christian gray thing, but it feels a lot more organic. His, his last name is gray. Yeah. In yeah. secretary. Like, oh, I don't, I, I wonder if that's a coincidence. I don't know if anyone's ever talked about it, but, um, the secretary came mm-hmm. quite a few years before 50 shades of gray. Um, but, uh, what happens is uh, they realize that she is very into being a sub. Mm. He's very into being a dom. And even though they work together, they enter into a mutual, even though they don't really talk about it, uh, BDSM relationship. Mm. However, just because he knows what he's into Mm. doesn't mean he likes being into it. And what we eventually realize is that even though he has all the power, eventually we realize that she's the one who's more comfortable with it. And he actually is feeling a lot of shame over who he is. Mm -hmm. And she ends up having to go through a rather extreme display of love like this like almost a rite of passage for the relationship Uh, in order to show him that he Mm. is not forcing her to be what he wants her to be and that she is actually has her own agency Mm. um it's a very simple story in a lot of ways actually but it's really wonderfully told maggie gyllenhaal and jane spader are great in it Mm. Um, i think jane spader is typically known nowadays for being very funny but here he's actually really tortured in a way Mm. that i think is really effective um and um, I think the movie like walks a really fine line between being erotic, mm. and there are definitely sensual moments, but also kind of clinical and mm. looking at this from a more objective perspective. There, again, there's no such thing as pure objectivity, but more objective and mm. attempt to show it that way. Um, there are things that I feel it whiffs. There are things that I think I think it takes some of the easy road out in terms of. Uh, some of Maggie Gyllenhaal's baggage that they're able to kind of just wish away because James Spader tells her as her dom you that's, can get rid of it. That's the part the, of it that's that, the, that's, the the opening act I feel is not well handled because uh, yeah. it, de- it deals with and a, a little bit of a trigger warning it deals with cutting yeah. and uh, I feel like this is a film that does understand uh, sort of the romance in a subdom relationship. I think mm-hmm. it understands kink very well, but it does not understand cutting. No, it does not. Yeah. I don't. I based on the people mm-hmm. that I know who have done that Mm. um it's not and it Mm. it it glosses over that in a way that is weird because it doesn't Mm. it doesn't completely like romanticize and walk away from uh some of the at least emotional complexities of a bdsm relationship so it's weird that it glosses over some of this other stuff yeah that that sucks and that's the that's one of the reasons why it's not my number one because mm. it's one of those movies where I was really on board with this. There was a long time where I was like, we're just not seeing this kind of relationship mm. in movies that even like have an R rating. Um, it's just what, and if so, it was treated as like a joke yeah. or it was treated as like Clive Barker or something kind of violent mm. and prurient and dangerous. And here's one where it's kinky, but it's a relationship and mm. there's actually something really loving and, and sweet there. Yeah. And, uh, um, and that part I really glommed onto. But as I rewatched it and I've thought about it more over time, I realized that that one part, unfortunately, really is a serious yeah, criticism. It's, it's, and it, it's it a, undermines some of the it, film. It's a sticking point. But if you and I've actually uh, I know several people who are into similar kinks. And this is a film that kind of unlocked a lot of them. Like yeah. they were able to see this depicted in in a very emotionally healthy sort of way. Yeah. 
And uh, so this is actually a very uh, venerated film in a lot of kink circles yeah, it does, for that it, very reason. It's not beyond criticism, but mm. it, again, it's, it, it illustrated things in a very positive way that were not being illustrated mm. at all in some cases. Um, and I, I think the good outweighs the bad. There's a reason it's on my list, but it's mm. also one that I cannot put on here without a caveat. Yeah. yeah. So um, thank you for... Mm. Thank you for agreeing with me on that. I was worried that I would be like, you know, because I know some people just don't criticize this one. And I, yeah, think, yeah. I think well, that part and, be- is and because it, it, it really is an important film in terms of healthy depictions of kink, you don't see that in movies. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it, I think there is, there are things to, to poke at in this yeah. movie. Uh, okay. Um, What's your next? Uh, this one's a little, this one's a little dark. Speaking of the pathology of, of sex okay. and how, um, this is a film that's very much about how uh, repression and and subtle emotional abuse can actually lead to a lot of uh, misinterpretations of sexual feelings. Okay. And this is a Michael Haneke film. It's called The Piano Teacher. Oh, I haven't seen this um, one. And uh, it stars the wonderful Isabelle Huppert, one of the greatest actors working. And uh, she plays a piano teacher. Uh, and she That is, makes sense. That's the title of the movie. <laughs> the French title is Le Pianiste, so she's, it's also just The Pianist. But um, she is the kind of teacher you never want to have. She's very cold. She's very clinical. She will criticize everything you do. She does, she's not warm. She doesn't have anything kind to say. And as we see over the course of the film, she also is subtly physically abusing her students. Like uh, when they either humiliate her in a sort of way or when they play better than uh, she expects them to and she they kind of show her up a little bit. There's a scene where one of her students uh, does something to slight her so she crushes a glass and puts it in her coat pocket. So when she puts her hand in her pocket later on, she cuts her hand. And at night, she sneaks out into public and engages in some pretty extreme sexual behavior. She goes to, like, porno houses. She has sex with strangers without learning their names. She... Uh, spies on people at drive-in theaters and uh, engages in public urination. Uh, Kinky things that she's getting a sexual charge from. But Isabelle Huppert is not showing any pleasure. She's not having fun with this. She's not enjoying it. And you start to realize that uh, a lot of this is stemming from her mother, whom she's still living with. Not only is she still living with her mother, but she still sleeps in the same bed with her mother. And there's a lot of just Freudian playground going on with something like the the piano teacher. This isn't a film that really kind of looks at sex as something that is uh, fun and zesty and a natural part of the human experience, but as something that can be profoundly broken. And mm-hmm. I think the, the piano teacher is really, really good about understanding and accurately portraying a certain kind of psychology mm. and a certain kind of pathology and the, the way it operates and the things that need to happen to cure it. It ends in a, a really shocking act of violence. Uh, it doesn't, it doesn't go to like some sort of noir territory because I, I'm making it sound like there's some sort of, larger depravity she begins to have an affair with a younger man and he begins to understand where she's coming from sexually and trying to suss out uh the the sort of emotional damage that she's been working through and has been using sex to to do that Mm -hmm. uh it's a very complex movie it's a very tough to watch movie but it's an incredibly good movie so i I really really recommend the piano teacher okay well i need to Mm. see that um Mm. Okay, I've got two more to go. 
Uh, and uh, well, you know my, what one of mine is. I do, <laughs> I do, and you have two more as well. But yeah. uh, my number two, and I, I've been increasingly uh, interested in the career mm. of a particular filmmaker. Um, and we've talked about some of the some of their films recently, and I haven't seen every single thing they've ever done. And some mm. things are genuinely very bad, but boy, do they have a point mm. of view. Uh, and recently on Twitter, when someone asked, like, who's the horniest filmmaker ever? Mm. The answer you're looking for is Russ Meyer. Russ Meyer. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, Tinto Brass. Uh, okay, but, yeah. Tinto Brass. Okay, fine, fine, Tinto Brass. <laughs> Just Franco, you already Just mentioned. Just Franco yeah. is, okay, fine. But, but Russ it, Meyer is right the fuck up there. When it comes to a filmmaker who is pretty much only ever making films for themselves. Mm-hmm. It's yeah, it's Russ Meyer, but Russ Meyer wasn't just making a, here's the deal. He was making a film for himself, mm-hmm. but he was also very welcoming. He wanted you mm-hmm. to come in and enjoy his kink. And his films are very particular about his fetishes and his fetishes are very strongly sexual women, powerfully sexual mm-hmm. women who are in control of their sexuality and are very, um, um domineering in their sexuality. Mm-hmm. Also, big breasts. The man <laughs> liked big breasts. That's that was his thing. That there's, doesn't. That's there, not, there's no other way to say that. No, there's you will if you watch one. Sometimes it's like so it's like it's like sometimes it's like if you watch like a couple of Spielberg movies, you'll notice he has like a thing about like father issues. Mm-hmm. But like maybe if it's only one, you won't look at it. You watch one Russ Meyer movie, <laughs> you know everything gonna, is about. You know, you know what he's into, yeah. and that's fine. And I think. There are times when he made mm. this prurient and distasteful. I think his um, Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens is actually a really tough sit. Um, but uh, and some of his movies are just totally bizarre. Some of his movies are totally bizarre, but he's interesting. And that's mm. the thing I think is interesting. But he's he's making fetishistic films. but And sometimes he just did nudie reels, which are just women jumping up and down. And that was it. That was the whole movie. Uh, but he was making movies when he made narrative films that were strikingly presented and had a clear point of view. Mm-hmm. And in particular, and in the movie that I think is, and this is this one also has to come with a bit of a trigger warning in it because this film does have scenes, one scene in particular of sexual violence. It is a mm-hmm. villain doing it. They are the super villain of the film and they get what's coming to them later. But there is mm-hmm. a scene of sexual violence in this movie. Um, but the rest of the movie takes place in a realm where all women are sexual superheroes. And I don't mean they have capes. What I mean is literally every woman in this movie, her name is super something. (laughs) So we've got Sherry Eubank as super angel. We've got uh, Christy Hartberg as super Lorna. We've got Colleen Brennan as super cherry. We've got Deborah McGuire as super Eula. Like all of them are larger than life people. And all of the men in this movie Hmm. are are dweebs they're mostly dweebs except for the bad guy who presents himself as this really tough customer he's played by charles napier Mm, from batman from batman and Mm. many other things he's a great character actor um uh but uh he he's a cop and he presents himself as the ultimate male sexuality and then he actually has an opportunity to have sex and he can't seal that deal and that turns Mm. him violent and he ends up framing this guy who has been basically the plaything of every woman that he meets. And he's just mm. sort of trapped in this hypersexual world where he can barely keep up. And after a lot of the film is just him running like, Oh no, more people want to have sex with me. 
<laughs> Sounds like something out of an anime. There's there's yeah. a lot of yeah, actually there's there's hmm. there's a whole subgenre of anime that's called that's like that. It's called I think it's the harem genre, I think it's what it's called. Right. It's about uh, one person and like oh, everyone else in the show just wants to have sex with them or at the hmm. very least thinks they're cute. Um, and, and they're overwhelmed by this. Yeah, like it's, it's they're too kind of, much. Kind of threatened by it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but uh, it's often a very funny genre. Sometimes it's tasteless, but, um, uh, but here, like he's just trapped in this world where sexuality is completely overpowering. Mm. And it's interesting to see like a movie in which sexuality isn't a side plot, isn't subtext. It's everything. It's as out in the open as it can possibly be. Mm. And it's a movie in which women have all the sexual power. And yeah. it's an actually really fascinating world to visit. And it's, yeah, it feels just as larger than life as any superhero movie. It's just as empowering in some ways. Yeah. It's just as over the top in some ways. I and mean, at the end, like Charles Napier has like kidnapped the heroes, the woman, the hero actually loves. And they've actually, he actually has a wholesome relationship towards the end, mm. but Charles Napier kidnaps her and he takes her to the top of a mountain and he challenges the guy to get to the top of the mountain and save his girl. And Charles Napier's plan is to throw sticks of dynamite down the mountain at him. <laughs> like that's where we're like, that's the level of subtlety we're at here. Mm. It's so huge. And again, some of it may be unpleasant. That's part of it. And if that is, that mm. is something that will make you disinterested in seeing the film. Don't see it. Don't see it. That's all I can say. However, if that sounds interesting to you, if this sounds like the kind of movie you can get into, enjoy, mm -hmm. appreciate the context of the sexual violence, understand that the movie is not explicitly just about that, nor is it, nor do I think anyway, mm -hmm. is it uh, celebrating that in any way. It's seen as a horrible thing. Um, and I, I think you'll see a film that treats sexuality very interestingly. Yeah. And... A movie that well, is funny, a um, lot of it, and it is a movie that's actually kind of sweet in some ways. It's just this odd hodgepodge that doesn't exist in the world of any other film except maybe the films of Russ Meyer or yeah, maybe Radley yeah. Metzger. <laughs> <laughs> I have a Radley Metzger film on my runner's top list, by the way. Um, yeah. Yeah. Oh, speaking of horny directors, there's Radley Metzger. Oh, for yeah. You. <laughs> uh, Radley Metzger is a well known softcore director. Radley and, Metzger, Tanto Brass. Mm -hmm. Jess Franco and Russ, Russ Meyer. Meyer. I think Russ of of them, Russ Meyer. I think is the better filmmaker. Bradley Metzger's a little bit arty, but yeah, uh, they're all arty. Like Teresa and Isabel, but yeah. I, I feel like Bradley. I feel like Russ Meyer was more interested, more often in telling an, an interesting story in an interesting way, mm. whereas the other ones can sometimes just be like, "We're Look, we're, we're just horny." Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's all we are. Tinto Brass, are you into bottoms? I can't tell. <laughs> oh wait, the frame's always full of butts. Yeah. Yeah, that's 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 into brass for He's you. a butt man. Uh, well, unfortunately, my my uh, second to last pick is not so joyous or fun oh, or well, funny. Fair enough. In fact, uh, this is a film that is all about sex and all about sexuality, and yet contains no sex scenes. And yet, this I remember it when this was about to come out in the late 1990s. There was a threat that this was going to get an NC-17 rating for dialogue alone, which would be a first. Oh, it I didn't. know what you're talking about. Uh, yeah. This is Neil Butte's film, Your Friends and Neighbors. Okay, that's that's an interesting choice. Yeah, well, I love it. Okay. I, I think it's a very good movie. Um, like I said, not fun. It's, it's, yeah. it's an incredibly dark movie. Uh, but, it's, uh, it's apocalyptically dark yeah, in a lot of ways. Um, and uh, Neil Butte is a fascinating filmmaker. He started off with these very, uh, very hard-edged movies that were really kind of 
looking at misogyny right in the eye and, mm-hmm. and, and not confronting it, but just sort of pointing out just how evil it is hey, just look. and just how, how deep and, yeah. and pervasive it is and the, the lasting damage it does to humanity. I consider in the company mm-hmm. of men, one mm-hmm. of the best horror movies of the 1990s, or yeah, at least one yeah. of the scariest. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Aaron, Aaron Eckhart is so damn good in that movie. Terrifying. Um, yeah, as, as sort of like Patrick Bateman level of evil yuppie. Mm-hmm. Your Friends and Neighbors is about six people. Uh, there's a married couple uh, played by Ben Stiller and Catherine Keener. There's another married couple played by uh, played by Amy Brenneman and Aaron Eckhart. And they each have a friend, uh, one played by Jason Patrick and one played by Nastasia Kinski. Uh, they don't have names. Uh, it's called Your Friends and Neighbors, but he means you. And uh, this, like Belle de Jour, is something that's really kind of confronting a lot of the uh, casual sadism that has come to infect American uh, rich society. Because mm-hmm. these are all wealthy people as well. And they're all preoccupied with sex. Uh, ben Stiller and Catherine Keener are both incredibly horny, but they're getting on each other's nerves. They kind of hate each other. Mm-hmm. Uh, Catherine Keener complains that he makes too much noise in bed and he is uh, so turned off by her hate for him that she, he starts seeking affairs elsewhere. Uh, Aaron Eckhart uh, is struggling with erectile def- dysfunction, and that's put a, thrown a big monkey wrench into his relationship with Amy Brenneman. Nastasia Kinski comes in and says, hey, Catherine Keener, we're both hot. Why don't we try something out? And so she starts to have an affair with Nastasia Kinski. And in the middle of all of this is Jason Patrick, who's essentially playing the devil. Mm. He's the one who is even more evil than all of the other people and is constantly mm-hmm. coming into, not pointedly, but just in sort of his coldness, drop in all of the sadism that is affecting all the other people and how this lack of ability to communicate one's sexual desires is leading to a kind of emotional ruin that, like you said, feels completely apocalyptic. Yeah. It's an exhilarating film. Okay. Uh, tough set. It's great. There's, there's, a, there's a scene in particular where Jason Patrick has a particularly long monologue that is just grotesque. Yeah. yeah and that's the it's, point. It's as, that's as horrifying point. as any horror you, movie. You, you can't pretend it's mm. not the point, but it's also um, serious trigger warning on that. Like yeah, this is yeah. this is going to be a really tough set for a lot of movies. This is not a movie to watch casually. I actually regret how few of the films on our list. I actually regret a lot of things about our list. I feel <laughs> like I feel like there's a there's a there's a lot of heterosexuality on our lists. Yeah. Um, and that's and that's that's the history of Hollywood was like way mm. too heterosexual for way too long. That's a part of it. Also, it's just the the way this shook out and we really want to hear from people if you have films. We'll talk about our number ones in a second, mm. but if you have films that we didn't discuss and you really want to talk about them, be tasteful. But uh, we'd love to hear from you. Letters at criticallyacclaimed.net is our email address. We might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. Iron lists tend to inspire a lot of people to email us talking about films that we missed or maybe missed the point of. Hmm. Um, and uh, in particular, we're very eager about this because sexuality is such a gigantic topic. And so many people live with it in different ways and have different experiences that even if we did like a top 25 or a top 50, there's no way we could cover everything. And that, yeah, that's not an, that's not an excuse. That's just, you know, that's, that, that sucks actually. So um, please let us know. There's a lot of stuff that we missed here. Mm. Uh, and we'd love to hear from you. We'll talk about some of our runners up in a bit, but uh, let's talk about our number ones. And 
you 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 mentioned before we recorded this that uh, one of the bit films on your list mm. didn't have any sex in it. It was just dialogue about sex, yeah, and, and, uh, and that's your friends and neighbors. No, no, and I realize now what you meant. And I remember thinking to myself, <coughs> "Do we have the same number one?" And I realized <laughs> that now that we don't. Okay, because there's a film uh, that is actually from 1950. Ah, okay. That is about explicitly about sexuality. It doesn't show anything graphic, but it is about sex. Mm. And perhaps because it is French, it Ooh. is allowed to tackle the subject more directly. This mm. movie, when it was released, uh, was censored in New York City. Oh my! Okay. And didn't and the to my understanding, the case ended up going to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court found in favor of Max Ophel's La Ronde. <laughs> I'm supposed to choose the arty French movie as my I was, number one. I was a little surprised, actually. Yeah. I kind of no, have you I, seen this one? No, really. Okay, yeah. so this is a film I found. I've, in... I've only seen one one Ophuls film. Okay, I, I'm I'm not like the biggest Ophuls fan. I haven't mm. seen everything Max Ophuls has ever done, but this is a movie I was introduced to in film school, and I was absolutely captivated by it. I think it's a really wonderful film. It's a smart film. It's an insightful film. It's a playful film, and that's the thing that it, that really got me. Um, but, uh, and I hadn't seen it for a long time. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm doing this film about the best films about sex. Mm-hmm. And I haven't seen LaRonde in a long time. So I'm glad I made the time earlier today to rewatch it because this is totally my number one. LaRonde, uh, is a film about people who have sex. <laughs> now stick with me. Because I know how weird that sounds. It's set in Vienna. It's set in the year 1900. And uh, it uh, stars Anton Walbrook as a mysterious master of ceremonies type character Mm. who operates a, uh, um, what do you call it? A merry-go-round. And that is is LaRonde. LaRonde is the round. Yeah, the circle. Uh, And his goal is to keep the circle going. Just keep the cycle going. In play. You gotta keep things in motion. And what we yeah. realize is what he's keeping in motion is people fucking. And it opens with uh, a young woman. She's a sex worker. Uh, she is played by uh, Simone Signore from... Um, oh, uh, uh, Diabolique. Lady Diabolique. Yeah. Great fucking movie. Um, and and you know, Cusk Door and a bunch of others. Brilliant yeah. actor. Uh, and um, she uh, seduces a... Or rather she, you know... She has sex with a soldier. Hmm. A week later, that soldier has sex with a chambermaid. Okay. A couple of months later, that chambermaid has sex with the son of her employer. A couple of weeks later, that son of the employer has sex with a married woman. That married woman has sex with her husband. (laughs) That husband has sex with a shop girl. That shop girl has sex with a poet... Mm. That poet has sex with an actress. That actress has sex with a count. That count has sex with Simone Signore. <laughs> so it's a, a big circle as to how you get to have sex with yourself. Um, kind of. Mm. There's a lot going on, actually. Mm. And on the surface, it's just following this kind of cycle of love. And mm. it really is... Some of these people are like playful, enjoying themselves, having great sex. Some people are, you know, not having the sex that they want, or mm. they're in loveless marriages or whatever. Um, but it's all portrayed as this is life. Life has sex in it mm. in Laurent, and there is there's fate, there's machinations, there's uh, twists and turns. But 
basically everyone is looking for a connection. And in this case, the connection is sexuality. Um, it's also a story about class mm. and the way that even though society seems to be rigidly divided by class and look at the characters we have here, we have a soldier, we have mm. a sex worker, we have a chambermaid, we have a rich uh, son of a rich man. We have a rich man. We have the wife of a rich man. We have a shop girl. We have a fancy schmancy poet. We have a famous actress and we have literally royalty account. Mm. They're all doing the exact same thing. They're all <laughs> united by this mm. base human physical impulse. So it's very humanizing of the entire experience and saying that like, regardless of whatever different experiences you have, whatever different situation you have, we're all seeking these connections. Yeah. It's also about sexually transmitted infection. I was about to say, you're describing this as uh, like the lyrics to the Tom Lehrer song. I got it from Agnes. Yeah. No, no, that's true. And that's, and that's part of it as well, where there's also on top of being this very pointed, insightful story about class divides on top of being this kind of atypically weird, sprawling ensemble rom-com. Mm. This is also a story about how when people have sex with each other, they're also being part of like this kind of weird physical community mm. and where like if you want to th say to yourself, the first person in this film has, I don't know, herpes. Mm. Then the next person gets it. And then they give it to the next person. And they give it to the next person. And eventually, it comes all the way around in a circle and everyone's got it. Mm. And the movie argues that's not even that big a fucking deal. <laughs> <laughs> it's just the way it is. It's the HPV movie. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah, should, please get vaccinated get for vaccinated, that, by the way. Yeah. That's, that's actually serious. But regardless, um, it, there's something just really fascinating about this movie in the way that it is overtly about sex. Mm. It's very positive about sex for the most part. Um, it's very funny and it's so inventive in the way that it sort of plays out. Yeah. Like um, there's this wonderful magical realism to just the art or the act rather of falling in love or lust and how that is something that, Again, whether you're a sexual person or not a sexual person, the way that we connect to other people mm -hmm. is an important binding force in the human experience. And so, again, you can look at it as something kind of base and tawdry and sexy. You mm -hmm. can look at it as something uh, very for sort of profound about uh, you know the way the divides all break down when we get into the bedroom. Or you can look at it as a somewhat subversive uh, film about, you know, why you should get your get a blood test every once in a while. <laughs> so, um, mm. yeah, it, it's, it's a really it's a really wonderful film. It's a funny film. It's it's a romantic film. Mm. It's a little dark sometimes. But overall, it's wonderful. It doesn't get talked about enough. It's currently on the Criterion channel. Um, and uh, I highly recommend it. And I was a little I'm surprised you haven't seen it. It seems up your alley. Uh, it, no, it's totally up my alley. I just. Never got around another to it. one I never got around to. I hope to you get it. around to it someday. I think you'll really yeah. like it. Well, let's talk about Eyes Wide Shut now. Yeah. Because you know exactly, I, I'm not going to tease this one out. Um, no. Eyes Wide Shut was Stanley Kubrick's last film. It came out in 1999. came out in a censored version. That sucks. Um, yeah. I know that actually hurt some of its reviews, but... It's distracting. This, this is maybe, apart from 2001, maybe uh, Kubrick's more, one of his more ambitious movies. Interesting. Uh, it's based on a novel by uh, Arthur Schnitzler called Traum Novel, which translates to dream novel. And this feels like it takes place in a dream. Mm. And I'm not sure if uh, 
how many people can relate to this, but from what I understand, it's pretty common. But when you're in a dream, there's often sex in dreams, Mm -hmm. but a common theme of a lot of dreams is like the sex frustration dream. Like you're with a partner, but something interrupts you or you can't find a a private place to to have sex with your partner. And eventually that's the entirety of your dream. It's it's often a a Mm. sexual anxiety dream. Yeah. 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 Uh, Eyes Wide Shut is a sexual anxiety dream. Yeah. Uh, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, who were married at the time, play a married, uh, rich married New York couple uh, who live in this weird Christmas world of soft lighting and a place where every single person they encounter reacts to them in a sexual way, uh, no matter what they're doing. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it opens with a little bit of a flirtation. Uh, they both go to this big fancy party. Uh this handsome old European man flirts with Nicole Kidman, uh, two hot young models flirt with Tom Cruise, and they both are kind of uncomfortable with all of the sexual attention they're getting. Mm. They both seem weirdly asexual in this movie. Mm-hmm. I like that they're, there's a scene early in the movie where they, they do have a physical scene together, but in that scene, Nicole Kidman is looking at herself in a mirror. So it's just this cold pane of glass that mm-hmm. sort of reflects back what they're doing. It's more about images than anything. Yeah. The appearance is, of being know, a good yeah. married couple and not actually, yeah. Uh, they get, uh, they get high one evening, uh, given how zonked out they're behaving, it must be really good weed. Uh, but they, uh, when when they're high, uh, Nicole Kidman reveals that she once had this really intense fantasy about uh, leaving her husband and her ch- child on a whim just because she saw a really hot soldier in a lobby. Yeah, that's it. Point. They didn't that's do it. anything. Yeah. They just saw him. She, just she saw was it so anyway. turned on by him mm. that she says, if he had come up to me and said, leave your husband, I would have done it. Mm-hmm. And, th- and then he gets called away. He's a doctor. He gets called away on a house call. And he ends up wandering the streets of New York. It's actually Britain and not very well disguised, but uh, it's he's it looks wand- fine. It's, it's a dream. Yeah. Who cares? But like he ends up wandering the streets of of New York. Um, everyone responds to him sexually. None of the sexual encounters go well. Some of them go catastrophically, horrifyingly mm-hmm. wrong. Well, and- his, his first stop is he's called away because uh, one of his patients has died. Yeah, and he goes to uh, to comfort the wife, and the wife comes on to him. Yeah. Says, I'm glad. I'm so glad you came. It's like, and while they're in the room with the dead husband, she tries making out with him. Yeah, he has, he's not like, into it. No, no, this is this is too weird. Your your dead husband is right there. Yeah, he ends up uh, talking to a sex worker who's oh. actually really interesting and interested, and he's interested too. But he talks himself out of it. He uh, has a really uncomfortable encounter with Lily Sobieski, mm. whose father doesn't mind. Well, and and uh, b- before that, uh, oh, he, well, he, he wanders the streets. Uh, there's like a group of like frat boys oh, who, yeah. who uh, throw some slurs his way, which yeah. is, you know, like another uh, sort of a form of sexual assault uh, that, that he encounters. Yeah. And he ends up wandering into a jazz club and runs into an old colleague of his. And the colleague says... I'm going to invite you to, well, I'm not going to invite you, but I'm going to tell you about one of it. my gigs as a piano player is I wear a blindfold and play music at these, like in these mansions where they have these really bizarre orgies. And, and Tom Cruise says, well, I mean, I got to go, right. I'm intrigued. Yeah. And so he gives him all of these details. He says, you got to get a costume and a mask. And it's where he goes to the costume shop that he runs. into. Oh yeah. I got the timing wrong, yeah. but he ends up going to this orgy and the orgy was this huge point of contention where everyone's like, this is going to be the hottest scene ever. And it has to have like digital. They had to like digitally put 
like people in the foreground foreground, to like just hide the sexuality so that it could possibly get an R rating and be released in theaters. Mm -hmm. It's clunky. Kubrick agreed to it. So you can't really say that they were like, you know, shitting on his vision, but it's clunky and it doesn't work and see the the official version. If you can, it's just a better film, but like regardless the orgy Mm. again, this is a dream. This is an anxiety dream where every sexual and everything is sexual Mm. subtextually or directly. Everything is bad. Mm. Every sexual thing is either something he doesn't want to do or is extremely uncomfortable with or doesn't work out. And then he finally gets to an orgy and the orgy is soulless. Yeah, everyone's wearing masks. There's no passion. The the way they instigate everything is this this weird sort of ritual where, like, there's a lot of nude women there, but it's they're not. It's very robotic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Everything's very mechanical. And then he ends up being like humiliated in front of everyone there. He's forced to take his mask off and everything. And then at the end of the night, he revisits a lot of the places that he had Mm -hmm. been. The, the next day. Sorry, yeah, yeah. the end of the night. Like the end of. The, I'm sorry. The next day. That's what mm-hmm. I meant. The night ended. The day begins. The next day, he ends up revisiting a lot of where he had been, and he realizes that all of the his like near miss sexual encounters were worse than he thought, yeah, and he actually dodged bullets. Him, yeah. And like, and it turns out the orgy, like he there were like really important people there and he doesn't want to know any more details. Mm. And also a woman who like stood up for him actually might've been murdered by them. And he's just completely wrecked. And all of this is because he couldn't handle the idea of his wife being sexually Mm. interested in anyone else other than him. That's Mm. it. Mm -hmm. If he could have just been cool with that, he would have gone right home. <laughs> well, and he would have said, like, it's so weird. This, the, the, this, this guy died and his daughter came on to me and it was really uncomfortable. And then that would have been their night. Uh-huh. No. He had to make this shit all about this, him. This weird kind of yeah. Yeah, journey of sexual insecurity. What I find uh, really fascinating about Eyes Wide Shot, A, I think it does get the way you dream about sex perfect. Yeah. Uh, that that well, kind of sexual... Your mileage is going to vary. I, I suppose but, like, so, it, but, you know... It, it speaks to us. This, yeah. this resembles uh, types of, like, sexual anxiety dreams that I've had personally. I think this is... He's tapping into something maybe universal. Uh, and also that... We have sexual insecurities even if we're not having sex. Yeah. They're still informing our actions and our thoughts. A lot of our sexual insecurities and a lot of our panic about sex come from all of these other constructs that are all around sex. And the last line of dialogue kind of puts a button on that. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's about cutting through the clutter. Yeah, cut through the clutter. I'm not going to say what the last last line is, but the last word of the movie is the F word. (laughs) Yeah. And that's that's really significant. Uh, And how... All of this stupid clutter we have about class and the way we relate to people is all just this dreamy haze that circles around this act that we just kind of need to shed off this gigantic, this planet-sized weight and just get to it. Yeah. I feel like uh, Stanley Kubrick is making a plea for just being a little bit more frank and straightforward about sexuality rather than allowing ourselves to go down these ego-driven anxiety trips. Uh, it's an excellent piece of work. It's a beautiful piece of art. Uh, like I said, I think it's tr- covering a lot of ground, even for Kubrick, who is you know really interested in a lot of emotional and, and psychological complexity. 
Kubrick has also always been accused of being a very cold filmmaker, uh, and this is a very cold movie. It's not about how sex is fun. Nobody behaves really in a very human fashion, except for maybe Sidney Pollack, uh, who, who plays mm. uh, a friend of, of Tom Cruise. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman are actually really well cast in this material because I feel like Tom Cruise more than Nicole Kidman uh, project a little bit more, uh, and we talked about this recently, a movie star quality more than sort of like an actually quality. Yeah. I feel like the characters they're playing are these sort of blank avatars of themselves as movie star constructs. A, a really telling mm. note of that as their last name in the film is Harford, mm. not Hartford. Harford and Kubrick came to that because he was like, who's the most American actor? Hmm. Harrison Ford. They're named <laughs> Harrison Ford. Ford. Yeah. That's. And so the idea is they're supposed to be this sort of stand in for like movie star yeah, and, Americanness. And, they, and they, they, yeah. they project this kind of cardboard cutout quality by, by design. That, yeah. That's part of the movie, uh, which, uh, goes a long way to, uh, depict that these people are getting really, really upset about sex when they're, not doing it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I really love eyes wide. Shut. I've seen it a bunch. I saw it when it opened. I saw it on opening day at that gigantic theater that used to be over in uh century city. Oh, Oh yeah. It's yeah, like that this gigantic 2000 cool. seat theater. Uh, I missed the I, national in Westwood. That was my favorite. Oh, the that national. So, bad. so watch beautiful. the movie Zodiac. The, yeah, the national there, is, yeah. is uh, felt like one of the last things they did was film Zodiac at the national before yeah, they demolished the theater. Beautiful theater, huge screen, mm. wonderful. Ah, uh, um, I saw Beetlejuice in that theater. Nice. <laughs> also, the movie Feds nice. with Rebecca De Mornay. Um, I what did I see? I saw the remake of Rollerball there. Um, <laughs> they can't all be winners. No, I suppose uh, not. But no, Eyes Wide Shut is a brilliant motion picture. Eyes Wide Shut is a film I saw when it came out. I was a senior in high school, mm. and it's one of those movies that taught me that like hype is hype sucks. Mm. Like anticipation sucks. When it comes to movies, and it sometimes makes it difficult to see the actual film for what it is. Uh Um, And I'd heard all this stuff coming up about the film, but when I saw the film, I was just sort of like, huh. (laughs) But what I also realized that in addition to, because this movie was like, again, it went wildly over schedule, and people were like huge lies about what was in the film and how like there, there was, I remember this rumor that the movie was actually going to be about Nicole Kidman and Tom Cruise are both sex therapists and they're both sleeping with their clients. And I'm like, I that remember is not, hearing that rumor. That has nothing yeah. to do with anything. You know what you can do to find out the plot of eyes wide shut? Read Trom novelle. <laughs> the book it's based that's, on. That's not that far off. Like it's pretty similar. Anyway. Um, but uh, I, I was, I was a kid. I was a teenager mm. and while I could understand academically a lot of the things in the film, I didn't understand them emotionally or sexually. Because it, it, it's a I movie about adults and adult issues. Yeah, I yeah. didn't have the experience that I needed to fully understand what the characters were going through and the way that the storyline, this sort of dream logic storyline, related to a lot of these more mature anxieties that I didn't have yet. Or at the very least, I didn't have fully developed yet. And as I've grown older, I only grow to appreciate this film more and more and more. Mm. And so I love this film. I'm glad it's your number one. It's a great motion picture. It's Again, it's not about sex being fun, but it is about sex. Mm. Um, I think it has an ultimately very positive message. Which I think is, it does. Yeah. But it, it, you have to get through some hard times to get there, which mm. is, again, also I think part of the film. Um, runners up. Right, again, I, there's no shortage. 
Yeah, I got There's, a big long list of runners. Me too. There. Me too. Um, well, do you want to go first or should I? Uh, I'll, I'll run them down. Okay, um, you do it. Uh, there's a really great film that came out in 1997 with uh, Cheryl Lee, Terrence Stamp, and uh, uh, that other guy who who is poised to be uh, a big movie star. Um, it's called Bliss, and it's about oh, uh, a, a, a married couple who uh, are having a little bit of dis- dysfunction. She's been sneaking off and seeing somebody who uh, he assumes is she's having an affair with this guy, but it turns out he's a sex therapist, and he's hmm. helping her deal with some trauma. Craig Sheffer. Craig Sheffer. Yeah, who's yeah who's, to... I would like to call him not Josh Brolin. <laughs> he's very Josh Brolin-esque. Yeah, uh, yeah th- this movie is about sort of... It starts out being about sort of male anxieties about sex, but ultimately it's about how we can use sex in a very positive way to overcome past trauma. Sounds good. Yeah, it's a very good movie. Um, I really liked Park Chan-wook's The Handmaiden. Yeah, that was on my runners up too. That movie was really, really fantastic. It's it's about two women who lust desperately after each other, but also it's kind of an anti-porn movie and how porn is being used to cater to some really unhealthy male fantasies that are giving them the idea that they can dominate women. I don't think it's so much yeah. about anti-porn. I mean, you could say that. I think it's more about um, anti-the male gaze. I think it's more uh, about well, the, the, removing that yeah. from the sexual equation because I think the actual ending of the movie mm. is about the characters sort of finding their own sexual strength even through some of the things that were sort yeah, of yeah. usurped and perverted by men and taken mm-hmm. away from women. So I think it's yeah. a really great film. I love that movie. Uh, a really wonderful LA film, specifically Hollywood. That's about sex workers. Tangerine oh, is really terrific. One. Yeah. Tangerine yeah, is great. So um, uh, everybody saw boogie nights a film about yeah. uh, the porn industry. Yeah. Uh, wonderful little indie horror film that is v- definitely about sexual anxiety. It could even be about sexually transmitted diseases is it follows made my list as well. Uh, a sec- I, uh, couple issues with the ending, but man, that's a great fucking movie. The ending feels a little bit too like pulpy, but yeah. I, I, I still like the movie. It's so good. Uh, Secretary is on my runners up. Um, mm-hmm. I, I, it's kind of a pity I wasn't able to include Catherine Brayot on my list. Mm-hmm. Uh, she's made a few very sexually uh, pointed movies. Um, one of hers that I prefer that doesn't get a lot of talk is Anatomy of Hell, mm. which is about um, a, a woman who hires a gay porn star and they get naked and they just sort of look at each other in the nude. I remember when this came this out, is, I remember reading about this, yeah. but I, never, I, was, I wasn't able to go see it. Yeah, and, and the whole goal is to, can we look at our own just physical anatomy and figure out where misogyny comes from? Mm. And they have discussions about just physical anatomy. Uh, nine and a half weeks, uh, Good old softcore smut, mainstream softcore smut from the 80s, but actually does have some poignant things to say about the way certain people respond to each other sexually and what the kind of things they're into. Body Heat's on my list. Uh, A Woman in the Dunes, the Hiroshi Teshigahara movie Mm -hmm. about a fellow who falls into a pit in dunes and can't climb out Mm -hmm. and ends up having this very... uh, kind of spiteful but very uh, sensual uh, relationship with a woman who lives down there. Uh, Greg Araki's Splendor. Oh. Um, I need to put did, Greg Araki in there somewhere. Did, did, well, th- this film in particular is a, a little bit personal, helps sort of like open up some things about my own sexuality. Oh, that's great. Um, uh, Sleeping with Other People is a completely delightful romantic comedy. I'm glad you put that on there. That's a, <laughs> it's a film about two sex addicts who agree mm. not to have sex with each other, mm. and they end up forming a relationship like a, based a, on... A really strong bond. Yeah, yeah. They're, it's so... 
so funny and it's so well written <laughs> and I wish more people had seen this movie. Yeah. It's so good. I like it a lot. I'm glad you put it on there. Um, uh, Radley Metzger's score is, is a really good one. Beyond the Valley of the Dolls I put on my list. Yeah. Speaking of Russ Meyer, a really interesting documentary about an artist and sadomasochist named Bob Flanagan called Sick. Oh, yeah. It's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Short Bus, the, oh, jo- okay. the yeah. John Cameron Mitchell film, uh, which uh, rather notoriously uh, featured on simulated sex acts. And is really also about healing and and relationships and emotions. It's actually very, very uh, disarming, mm. the way John Cameron Mitchell films tend to be. Okay. Um, well, I also have a long list of runners-up. And again, it's easy to have uh, a long list of runners-up here because so many movies tackle sexuality in one form or mm. another. Um, but uh, so I've got here... Um, Speaking about sort of the puritanical nature of Western civilization, uh, the People versus Larry Flint. Oh, there you go. Directly about that, but mm-hmm. it's more about the politicization of sex and sex itself. So, kind of nudged mm-hmm. it out of my top well, ten, but, but it's I mean, so that's, good. That's that's really important. Though. It's a great film. Yeah. Uh, going back uh, to the pre-code era, uh, I thought I'd talk about uh, the Divorcee, mm-hmm. uh, which is a film about marital infidelity and how it's sort of. Um, Creates a stigma for women, but not men. Mm. Uh, Norma Shearer is amazing in that movie. It's a little judgy, but it's very good. Well, it is from the 30s, after all. And but I, for the time, it's pretty fucking good. Yeah. And she's amazing in it. Um, a movie about sexual kink that goes horribly wrong and forces someone uh, to re-examine their entire life and all of their trauma in order to survive is Gerald's Game. Gerald's Game is a very good movie. Carlo Gugino is Fucking phenomenal in that film. It's a very, very good movie. I like it a lot. Uh, a comedy I'm surprised I didn't mention because it's very, very sweet. Blockers. I love Blockers. Blockers is cute. Blockers oh, is I about. Sh- a... I should have put Blockers on my list. Blockers that's that's a... an oversight. Blockers is a good one. Blockers is about. It, it came, made some money, went, has been talked about a lot since. Uh, but it's about a bunch of parents who find out that all of their like teenage kids are planning to have sex on prom night. Mm. So they get all worked up into a tizzy and they run out to try to prevent their kids from having sex, not realizing that their kids are actually very responsible. They're incredibly responsible. And if any of them do, they'll have sex the right way and it'll be fair mm. and safe and, and healthy. And, and uh, it's really good. And, and all the parents have different motivations. Ike Barinholtz uh, yeah. uh, knows his daughter is gay. Yeah. But he doesn't want her to have the, sex the, with a dude. The, yeah. The daughter hasn't things. come out yet. Just yeah. he, he just he knows his daughter that well. Uh, and so his motivation for trying to stop her prom date is no, no, that's not going to be good for you. Find a girl. Yeah. <laughs> find, find the, find the girl that I know you're in love with and just say something. Yeah. Blockers was very, very yeah. close to being in my top 10. I think it's a really sweet film. The handmaiden was on my runners mm-hmm. up. The sessions was on my runners up, Uh sleazy erotic thriller, but maybe the ultimate sleazy erotic thriller, wild things. <laughs> Oh my god! Wild oh, things wow. is nuts. That is a breast to the face. <laughs> it's it's that, it's that, it's a it's that, a sleazy movie. You're gonna need a bath after sex, that movie. Oh and gosh! It's, but it also has one of the most complicated screenplays you will ever encounter, and it works. It all fits together. It actually, all fucking works. Mm-hmm. And it's like you're gonna watch it and you go, "Well, this is just prurient." And like, wait a minute. It's actually quite Wait a minute. This kind is of actually kind of good. Sneaky Florida yeah. noir. Yeah, it's, a... it's pretty good. Um, a film that I wanted to rewatch for this because I wanted to make sure it held up. Mm. Um, and I didn't get a chance to in time. I feel like it might have made my top 10 uh, is Booty Call. I haven't seen Booty Call. Booty Call is a very oh, cute I've film. Heard nothing but good things. There's since it Jamie Foxx, yeah. Vivica Fox, a bunch of other people. And um, about two other guys. people not, not named Fox. Yeah, it's about it's um, Tom, is it Tommy Davidson? Tommy Davidson. Yeah. Tommy Davidson. They're, uh, Jamie Foxx and Tommy Davidson are uh, both on a date. 
Mm. And the date's going really well. And like their dates live right across the hallway from each other. Mm. And things are going awesome. Problem is, their dates are very serious about safe sex. Mm. And they don't have any protection. So they send them out into the wilds of New York, like after hours, to get sexual protection. Mm. And they end up having to go out multiple times. And every single time they do, it's another like fucking like after hours kind of like nightmare scenario like <laughs> one time they're like they're going they're finally like okay fine listen let's just we're both so horny okay let's just get some condoms and, and then we'll go if we finally find a place that's open and it has condoms it's great and then their preacher played by bernie mac is in the store and they have to explain where they're buying condoms it's fucking funny oh God, i'm rem- reminded of that one bit from amazon women on the moon yeah Right. He's trying to discreetly buy condoms because he's a kid and yeah. like a teenager, and he's discreetly buying condoms. And then there's this balloons he, he fun- fall down. He's he, the one thousandth customer. He, yeah, he finally gets the curtain <laughs> nerve to mask the, the elderly uh, drug druggist. And this is like the 1950s to for some prophylactics. Yeah, and, and he's like the one millionth customer. And they throw a party, and there's a marching band. And he's completely mortified. He wins a lifetime supply of condoms. And, and a, a little cute, uh, cute gag is that. Uh, they're named George and Violet, which were oh. the name characters from uh, It's a Wonderful Life. That's cute. Um, let's see. Uh, Double Indemnity was on my list. A Dangerous okay. Method I've already mentioned. It follows. Sleeping mm. with Other People. The Rocky Horror Picture Show. Mm. Of, oh, well, of course. Um, a lot of people would put a film like Fatal Attraction on here. I like Fatal Attraction fine, but for my money, Adrian Lyne's best thriller is Unfaithful. That's a good movie. Really mm. fucking good. Diane Lane got an Oscar nomination for it, and she fucking deserved it. Frankly, I think Richard Gere did too. Mm. Um, this is a really good movie about an extramarital affair that goes horribly wrong. It's really, really good. Um, let's see. Blue Velvet had to include Blue Velvet. Mm. Uh, she done him wrong. Is is on there? The movie itself isn't so much explicitly about sex as it is that Mae West is explicitly about sex. <laughs> Mae West is someone who I don't think gets talked about enough. Mm. She was really an outlier in like the the dawn of hollywood um she wrote plays that gave her starring roles to be really empowered and sexually forthrighting make give her like all of this control over all of the men in her life and when the production code came around it's like no 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 you can't do anything and she still fought against it and made a lot of really good movies and she done them wrong was Mm -hmm. not for best picture it's holds up really good you gotta love it uh the vampire lovers uh, is uh, a great queer themed uh, vampire movie. Uh, one of my favorite, there's so many sexy vampire movies out there, but one that doesn't get enough love, I think, is uh, Kiss of the Damned, uh, which is maybe the horniest vampire movie. Like, And that's a lot, saying a lot. Like, It's really underrated, I feel. Mm. Uh, and then I want to give one shout out. Here's a movie I haven't seen, but I was talking about it with my wife and partner, M. Lopez Silva. And she thought I should throw in a mention of a film she thinks is really interesting called Indecent Desire. Sometimes it's been released as sometimes it's been released as Indecent Desires. Uh, And it's a film by Doris Wishman, who is an erotic filmmaker. Oh, I love Doris Wishman. A very interesting erotic filmmaker. Nude on the moon, Doris Wishman. Uh, Made a lot of interesting erotic films. I've seen some of them. I haven't seen this one. Uh, But uh, she wanted me to point out that this is a film that explores the objectification of women in sex. In a very unique way. And I'm going to read you the uh, IMDb uh, description. It's like five sentences long. Zeb, this is from 1968. Zeb finds a doll and a ring in a garbage can. Then he sees Anne going to work with her friend Babs. He thinks she looks like the doll. When he gets home, he caresses the doll and Anne feels it. 
When Zeb finds out about Anne's fiance Tom, he gets really mad, burns the doll, and starts like abusing it, and Anne starts thinking she's losing her mind. Oh, and it's weird. about how male objectification mm. actually affects women. Um, sounds really fascinating. I haven't seen it. Michelle thinks it's a really interesting film, and nobody talks about it. The films of Doris Wishman are sadly hard to find right now. Mm. This one doesn't seem to be streaming anywhere. So, um, something to keep an eye out. If you ever see it around, apparently it's really interesting. I can't wait to see it myself. I'll have to do some digging. Yeah. Uh, but I want to give a shout out because I trust her taste. She's, she's very interesting taste in film. Um, and of course there's a million other films and we would love to hear from you. So please, if there are films that we missed, if there are really just anything at all, we'd love to hear from you. Our email address is letters at critically acclaimed.net. We would be happy to spend a lot of time talking about this topic on an upcoming episode of we've got mail. Uh, if there's again, very curious to hear from you. And again, mm. we keep it tasteful, but uh, at the least the conversation. Obviously, the films don't have to be, but we need to, you know, mm. we don't want to be weird about it. Um, and uh, of course, we're on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibel. And we have a Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Critically Acclaimed Network, where we have a ton of exclusive content and where you can vote for future episodes of various shows, including this one. And again, this is a monthly show, and we'll have another Iron List next month, because it takes a long time to put these together. Um, and next month, your poll options are... The best movie musicals. Just movie musicals. Yeah, just general. general. Yeah, mm. Big list. The best werewolf movies. And we've talked about this, and we're thinking about excluding an American werewolf in London... And the Howling the, and Ginger Snaps. The, the obvious ones. Because they're going to be the top three. <laughs> so we might do like, that's understood, and then we'll do the other ten. Mm. Just because we need an excuse to talk about other werewolf movies. Because those those films suck up a lot of the oxygen in the werewolf movie conversation. Mm. Uh, the best action movies of the 1980s. Which is a little bit more my, my wheelhouse than Whitney's, but I'm very curious to see what he'd come up with. Uh, and then the best non-superhero comic book movies. That is based on comic books, but have no superheroes. In no, them. they might still be genre stories. They could be horror films, action movies, whatever, but they don't have superheroes. That's, again, mm. something that sucks up a lot of the conversation. And we want to talk about the other adaptations yeah. of which there is no shortage. Um, so, again, that poll will be up shortly after this episode premieres within 24 hours of it. And uh, we look forward to seeing what you vote for. And we will be thrilled uh, to put together that iron list next month. So thank you, everybody, once again. Um that's the list. And until next month, the list is closed.